This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. of my existence is paywalls. Well, okay, I have two banes of my existence. One, maybe three. Okay, (laughs) I guess the list is multiplying. Number one is uh, daylight saving time. And uh, wait until, if you want to skip Friday's show, then just, you can skip it. Because picture just a three-hour rant about why it's idiotic for us to set the clocks back this coming weekend. All right, that, that's the last I'm going to mention of it today. Number two is mosquitoes, and number three is paywalls. I am so done, done with an article sparks your interest. Maybe someone sends it to you. Maybe it's in a newsletter somewhere, whatever. Maybe you're searching on Google and you're you're trying to get different things. And then you try to pop open an article. Oh, that looks interesting. Let me click on that. Oh, you if you want to read this whole article? No, no, no. You've got to pay $12 a year or whatever. It's just I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm paying for too many news services already. I wish there – I've said this for years. I wish some entrepreneur could say, all right, here's $100 a year. Even if it's $150 a year. And you now have access to every single news service, Uh, every news publication. You will never hit a paywall again. I don't care what that amount of money is. I would happily pay it. So I'm mentioning this because I read the beginning of an article in the, the, the newspaper that used to be called The Bergen Record. I think it's just called The Record now. And it asks an interesting question and one that I am just fascinated by. Now, I can't really tell you the answer to the question I'm about to ask because I don't have a subscription to the record. If you do, by the way, you're welcome to email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And the question is, and they localize it to New Jersey because they're a local paper, but I think the same thing could be asked in just about any state, in any community in America, from Alaska to Alabama, from Baltimore to Boston, from New York to Newark, everywhere. Why do people leave cars unlocked as thefts are on the rise in New Jersey? So the records, Liam Quinn did a whole investigation in trying to find out. Much has been made about the growing car theft problem in New Jersey, and the state is once again on pace to surpass its previous year total. 
But why are more cars being stolen? Evidently, a big factor is a lack of owner responsibility. Local law enforcement figures have also emphasized that an effective way to avoid getting your car stolen is to make sure it's locked and that the key fob isn't left inside. Now, that might sound like a no-brainer to many people, but not everyone is following that very simple practice. Very high-profile example of this occurred in January when an SUV belonging to former White House communications director and recent Andrew Cuomo podcast guest Anthony Scaramucci was stolen in Paramus because the vehicle had been left unlocked with a spare key fob in it. Fortunately for the mooch, the car was recovered later that day. But I'm going to ask you this question. Why do people keep leaving their cars unlocked, especially with the keys in it? Because this goes on all over the place. If my mother had a car stolen by uh, this is from her house, from her driveway, this is about seven, eight years ago, maybe no, maybe a little more than that, but maybe about 10 years ago, um, by a 15-year-old. And essentially, this 15-year-old and some of his other friends, they would go uh, from car to car, driveway to driveway, and just look for cars that were unlocked and had the key locked, had the key in it. So they would go and then joyride. And this 15-year-old stole her car, drove it a few miles, I think uh, crashed it, and then the police saw a 15-year-old driving a car and re- recognized that he shouldn't have been driving, and they arrested him, thankfully. I mean, it was not uh, any bad damage, but still. Had my mother not left that key in the car, then that car wouldn't have been stolen. My friend John Tobacco, John Tobacco from uh, Newsmax, son of a police officer, guys run for office himself over the summer. He had a car stolen. Why? He left in the car. Uh, this is actually a year ago. A year ago. It was Fourth of July weekend, not this past summer, but the previous summer. He had a car stolen. And then four or five months later, for a story that I don't feel like repeating at the, at the moment, I found myself, uh, I found that I woke up after a night of wilding in John Tobacco's car. How I got there, that's still a big mystery. We'll save that mystery for another day. But I found that I had woken up in John Tobacco's car. And I didn't know whose car I was in. And I said, oh, gee, I better drive home because my phone was dead. And I'm sure I was coming home to a very angry wife, which I certainly did at the time. His His keys were still in the car. And I mention this because here was someone, my friend John, who got his car stolen because he left the key in it. And then... He still would routinely leave his key in the car. Why do people do this? 800-848-9222. And I'm curious if you're in law enforcement in any jurisdiction in America, how common is this for you? 800-848-9222. I find this to be really wild. And I am amazed that in spite of all the publicity on this, you still see this happen so often. Why? 800-848-9222. One of the people that I really enjoyed interviewing when Larry King passed away was his former producer, and she said something about Larry King, and I've tried to adopt this myself. She said that the most important uh, question that Larry King ever asked was why. 
And that's the question I'm asking. Why do people do this? Do you do this? If so, why? We're not going to judge you. Uh, to, par- to quote uh, that great uh, poet Walt Whitman, I always try to be curious, not judgmental. And I am really curious about this one. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with, uh, by the way, uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Alan Tonelson. Alan Tonelson is a great guy. He is uh, an expert on economics, foreign policy. He's got a great blog where he covers a lot of these issues called Reality Check. And I steal a lot of great content from there because this is a guy that knows a thing or two about a thing or two. He's going to join us in about 15 minutes Talk about the economy, talk about inflation, talk about this uh, Russia-Ukraine situation, a bunch of other things. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with the Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hi, Frank. Uh, you know what? My memory is so bad that when How I'm on the line waiting to get on. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bad that when I'm on the line waiting for you, I got to write your name down so I remember who the heck I'm talking to. Well, and I guess I just have to work on leaving more of an impression with people, Tom. No, no, you are. It's me. It's me. This is 100% everywhere. Okay, a couple of things here. The things with the cars, you know, I think people are leaving cars in places that's not where they live, and they believe this, this place is safe. You know what I'm saying? I don't believe they're getting them stolen so much from where they live. I don't believe it. Um, I think it's they leaving them unsecure because they think these other places they're going is a, is a safe. And uh, on this time change, do you know how the time got changed? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to save the time change discussion for, for Friday because I'm not okay, going to bore people cool. with two straight days of this. But um, in, oh, cool. in terms of, um, in terms of the, the car issue, I just gave you two anecdotal examples from my own life of people that live in safe neighborhoods, uh, both my mother and my friend John, uh, you could probably, I don't think you could get a house on their block for less than $800,000, right? And yet it's a great neighborhood. And yet both of them got their cars stolen from right in front of the house because they left the keys in the car. Why do people do it? Why do you think? Well, she left it where she lives, right? How safe can you think you are? You know right. what I'm saying? So, she lives in a good neighborhood. I bet you she lives in a fantastic neighborhood. Yeah, but, well, that's what I'm so, saying. So is that what it is? It's that people feel like if they're in a safe neighborhood, they don't need to be cautious? Well, they feel that the neighborhood is safe where they're at. Obviously, they're wrong sometimes. I mean, even in the train, people are still standing near the edge of the platform. This is getting ridiculous with me, with people getting pushed over. Why are they? Why do they feel that they all right stands at the train and that nothing's going to happen to them? I well, mean, I, 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 I can't. I, I can't answer that. that one, Tom. But uh, I yeah. would uh, thank you. I would guess that the problem that I'm talking about of car theft, which is on the rise, and look, New Jersey. People are still leaving their key in the car, even while thefts are setting a record. Why? Why? Tell me. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Caroline in Long Island or on Long Island. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Good evening. Morning. Um, I wanted to tell you I live in a very safe neighborhood in Basel. I leave my key in the car all the time. Well, you're breaking up here, Caroline. It sounded like we were just getting to the good part. 
Oh, I lost you, Carolyn. Call back if you can hear me. 800-848-9222. Annette is in Manhattan. Hello, Annette. Hi. I just wanted to say a lot of people think they live in a safe neighborhood, but they're not aware of the crime that goes on there. They should probably check it out. But also, it's not just that people leave their keys in their car more now than ever, which... Oh, boy. Uh, clearly, whoever, uh, if there's a thief at play, he's stealing our uh, our callers today. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in central New Jersey, the car theft capital of the region. Hello, Pamela. Hello. It might have to do to deal with a uh, throwback to the 80s when people, especially in New York City, were leaving their car doors open on purpose with signs saying, Door is open, just take it. Uh, the cassette players and the CD players, because they were being stolen so much that it was cheaper to leave the door open than having a thief crack the window open. Or Right, right. I know, you know that. But in this case, in what we're seeing now is thieves aren't just stealing radios. They're stealing the whole vehicle. So why would – I'm not sure I understand. Why would that mentality from the 80s still lead people to leave their keys in their car today? Why not simply lock the car and take the key with you? I think it, maybe it has to do with all this remote startup and everything. The the uh, y- younger generation just uh, – uh, uh, you know, I, and I'm just saying they're so used to uh, technology that maybe they think they're protected when they're not – you know, there's sort of a – we were more aware of locking our cars up years ago before all this technology. I, I, I think it's just a mindset of generations or something. Interesting, interesting. So there's something about how technology trains people to, I don't know, be less cautious, I guess, is the, 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 what you would describe it as. And that's uh, – the byproduct of that is they don't lock the door and they leave their key in the car. Yeah, I, I really think it is. Everybody has so much on their mind that they really just don't get it. Uh, uh, I, I think we were more aware of crime years ago as a just a regular. For instance, my sister lived in a more rural area, and she, it, it, even though it wasn't so much safer, sometimes the worst crimes go on in that. And, and this, you know, and it was still New Jersey. And I used to laugh at, you know, like you're, you're not in Shangri-Laville. This is not Safeville. But, you know, I, I coming from central Jersey, it was like lock everything up. And even when I traveled down south, people would joke with me like, oh, you can tell you're from New Jersey. <laughs> you know, every time you leave the house, you lock the door to, just to go to your mailbox. You know, it's it's like I think it's like a mindset or something. It's uh, generational and just, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting, though. It's Well, thank you. Thank you, Pamela. I appreciate it. Uh, Caroline is back. She's on Long Island. Hello, Caroline. Hi, thanks for taking my call again. Yes, I grew up with my dad putting the keys on the floor of his car and walking into the house. And I, I now my daughter, who's 18, locks her door. I leave the key in the car. It's like a habitual thing I grew up doing. And I don't like to have to look for my keys when I leave the house. See, that's what my friend that's what my friend John said as to why he kept doing it after he got his car stolen. And I, I get it. That makes sense. And I can relate to that as well, especially as somebody that loses his keys all the time. I, I certainly get that. But uh, when you hear all these stories about car theft that is due to uh, people leaving their keys in their car, does that give you any pause about maybe not yeah. doing it? Yes. I would... Yeah, I'm always trying to break my habit. 
because it's going to come to my community. I, I don't know when. I mean, so it, I it's just because state. you grew up that way and it's the way you've always been doing it? Because I live in the town I grew up in and I, I it's such a safe, safe town. But if I lived, you know, maybe in Jersey, I would do. But <laughs> I'm block. telling you, Caroline, my mom's block, safe as can be. It's bucolic. There was, I used to be able to sit in the street as a child. You know, there would, uh, cars rarely even pass by on that block. It's a safe street. But I'm telling you, and take it from her experience and my friend John's experience, People are going to the safe neighborhoods and the good neighborhoods, and they're checking if these cars are unlocked. Caroline, thank you. I appreciate you calling back and sharing that. John's in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Pleasure as always. Likewise. Um, I'm not one to leave my keys in the car, but I think I lose my keys all the time. And I think a lot of people might be misplacing their keys or forget where they put them. So maybe that's why they leave them in the car. So you never have to look for your car keys. You know what? I, and I, I look that's similar to what Caroline said, and that makes sense. You know what? I don't understand. I do not understand how in this day and age we don't have it so that your fingerprint or your handprint, you need a fingerprint to open a mobile phone. Now, what does a mobile phone cost at most? What does it cost? A thousand dollars at most? These cars are worth thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes more. Why do they not have that same fingerprint technology to start a car? This way, I mean, shouldn't you be able to start your car with a thumbprint just as you're able to start your smartphone? And yet, we're not there yet. At least maybe some car models are, but that's not the norm. That would seem to deal with both of these problems, the car theft problem and the convenience problem. 800-848-9222. Uh, George is in Brooklyn. Hello, George. Hello. I can tell you the car keys of today are unwieldy. And compared to the cars of the 1970s and 60s, which mostly had bench seats, there was no console to leave the key, to forget the keys on. And, I mean, in the older cars, the keys were a lot more convenient to carry and went well with the rest of the house keys and everything else. These new car keys, most of them have these huge uh, electronic fobs. And um, so who wants to carry those key fobs around all day is what you're saying? That could, I mean, and when you have a car that has a push button start and push button to turn off, it may be you just forget the, uh, the the key fob and what when you leave the car. Well, it's that not makes like sense. The old right? days yeah. when you had an ignition key and turned it off and took the key with you. I, I hey George, that is as good of an explanation as anything I've heard. So so far we've gotten thank you. So far we've gotten I don't want to look for my keys right. So far we've gotten habit because that's the way that I've always done it right. So far we've gotten. Um, the keys are too clunky, and who wants to carry them around all day? Um, All of these are reasonable. I still don't know why my solution, and I'm sure brighter people than me have thought about this, of a fingerprint, just the way you would start your mobile phone for a car, why that's not ubiquitous in every car model. We are entering into an age where in the near future, you are going to have to show that um, you've not been drinking in order to drive a car. Now, if they have that technology, 
why not also include fingerprint technology? And I know some people share cars. My wife and I share a car. But there's no reason you couldn't have multiple fingerprints, two or three different fingerprint startups for a single vehicle. I do not understand why we're not there. And I also do not understand why the preponderance of people in New Jersey that are getting their cars stolen because they leave the keys in are doing this. And the reason I don't understand it is because I don't have a password to the record. If you do pay for the record and you want to share your password with me, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We're going to talk with uh, Alan Tunnelson in just a moment. Let me squeeze in a couple more people here. Joseph is in North Carolina. Hello, Joseph. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. I love your North Carolina accent, Joseph. No, I'm actually traveling to, traveling to Florida. I moved out of New York recently. Ah, that puts you in the majority. Yep. And I think that the society today is just a bunch of lazy thinkers. They don't want to put their effort into anything. They're just, like, clumsy. And they just if you leave the keys in the car and the car gets stolen, the insurance shouldn't pay for the claim. It's as simple as that. You're irresponsible. Everybody's irresponsible these days. They they feel like they're owed everything. You know, I had a guy working for me for like two weeks. He's like, so when am I getting my raise? It's been two weeks already. I'm like, excuse me? So it's a laziness thing. Guys. It's a laziness it's thing a and a generational lazy thing. Thinkers. It's lazy thinkers. That's why all the, all the liberals, when you give them a good a good point about what's going on in society today, they're like, they just get flustered and they walk away from you because they don't want to think they want don't want to use their head they well, want to do like they want to study uh they want to study ge- gender equality because that's uh, more fun for them thank you so nobody wants to do the work thank you joseph uh, i you know that's a new record right we've been on the air 20 minutes talking about a non-political topic before somebody brought up politics it usually it takes 20 seconds usually but leave it <laughs> Leave it to um, 21st century America. People will always find a way to blame their political adversaries for whatever's wrong in society. Um, All right. Let me squeeze in one more call here, and then we'll uh, we'll talk to Alan Tonelson. My friend Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Frank, I love you. I love you. Let's spend a couple thousand dollars for fingerprints or fake recognition. Even though the car comes with a lousy key, a five-dollar key is all you need. It's kind of ridiculous, Frank. But well, but, but somebody... honestly, but couldn't the same thing be said of a mobile phone? Why is the fingerprint technology ubiquitous on smartphones? They incorporate it as they as they make them, but you you do pay for it, right? Right. So but you... why not just do the same thing with with car manufacturing going forward? Incorporate you don't need it on the mobile phone, just like you don't need it on the regular car. I right, mean, but it's you... there. It's there. Like I, you know, I, uh, I have two ways of accessing my mobile phone. I could either use a fingerprint or enter a passcode. If they can incorporate that technology on mobile phones, and there's many more mobile phones than there are vehicles in this country, if they can incorporate it on every smartphone, why can't it be incorporated relatively, relatively easily onto every vehicle? Well, number one, it's not necessary. That's why they got keys and locks on it. And the other thing is, your other caller hit it on the nose. If they uh, if somebody steals the car and the keys are in it, I believe the insurance company won't pay the claim. Well, so uh, yeah, I I've heard that, uh, but uh, I, from what I've seen, and I've known people that this has happened to. 
usually uh, they they still the insurance company still pays, and uh, usually they still uh, they still do. So in my experience, I have not heard of someone getting their vehicle stolen and the insurance company refusing to pay. Maybe that does happen. Maybe it is more common. Uh, Neil, thank you for the call. Alan Tonelson waiting in the wings. We're going to talk money, the economy. Uh, inflation, trade, you name it. A whole bunch of stuff with Alan Tonelson of the Reality Check blog. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I dreamed of Alaska so far away And I dreamed I was flying over mountains and glaciers Somehow I knew that I'd live there one day Well, it took me some growing and a fair bit of schooling A little bit of trouble to get on the move And I felt like a loser, but I turned out the winner When it came to Alaska, the land that I love John Denver singing about Alaska. This is our first week on uh, AM 700 KBYR in Anchorage, Alaska. I've been getting a lot of great feedback from the Alaskans that are listening, including a lot of the polar bears. The polar bears up there are uh, much brighter than you might think that uh, they are. Well, whether you're in Alaska, Baltimore, Nevada, or New York, uh, you are in for a treat because you are about to be struck by a whole bunch of wisdom in the person of Alan Tonelson. Alan Tonelson is one of my favorite policy analysts to speak to. He is a trade expert. He is the founder of Reality Check, which is a blog covering economics, national security, technology, a bunch of other subjects. He's also been an advisor on trade issues to Donald Trump and to Bernie Sanders. Alan, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Frank, it's great to be here. And I got to tell you, it's a real coincidence that uh, that you were playing that John Denver song because my wife and I have just decided that this coming summer we're going to take a cruise to Alaska. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. You'll, we well, can't wait. That, we uh, can't you know, wait. My parents went, they had a great time, and uh, they have a bunch of uh, recommendations of folks, that of uh, people, things you should check out while you're there. So I'm yet to hear of a person that hasn't had a, a good experience. Well, I've actually been there once before, about seven or eight years ago. I went to Anchorage on business, basically giving speeches to local organizations, high schools, things like that. Um, I didn't get out that much, and it was still it was still late winter, so it was awfully cold and, and rather hard to travel very far outside Anchorage, but it was still wonderful, and I can't wait to go back. I can imagine. All right. Um, an ABC News Ipsos poll shows that the economy and inflation are the most important issues to about half of Americans voting in this year's midterms election. Now, I've always viewed those issues as, if not the same, at least inexorably linked. But from what you're seeing, what impact do you think those two issues, inflation and the economy, will have on the upcoming elections on Tuesday? From all indications, it looks like they're going to be absolutely decisive to the point at which 
they are likely to greatly outweigh even the widespread outrage among various constituencies about the Supreme Court's decision this past summer striking down Roe versus Wade and striking down national abortion rights. I actually uh, was pretty convinced once that ruling came out that this was going to put Republicans in real trouble, but I greatly underestimated the extent to which the the Biden administration would completely mismanage this economy and completely mismanage inflation and, in fact, try to convince the entire electorate that what their eyes were seeing every day when they went to the grocery store or to the gas station in terms of rising prices just wasn't happening. And clearly that just hasn't worked. Interesting. And uh, just so folks know where you're coming from politically, you identify yourself as uh, as conservative, as liberal. How, how do you characterize your own political views? I think the best term that I've heard for people like me is radical centrist. I really do think there are positions from all over the spectrum um, that are are worth considering and worth following. And I think actually one of the great failures of this country's politics is that we're so siloed into very rigid, very well-defined schools of thought that we've lost the either ability or the interest in trying to learn from each other. And I think that there are a great many new syntheses of U.S. politics that are just waiting out there that would be tremendously popular. But most of our politicians, and this goes for liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans alike, simply haven't uh, woken up to this. Uh, I I completely agree with you. And uh, to the extent that I discuss politics and policy on on this program, that's one of the constant themes that I've mm-hmm. been trying to uh, harp on, and I completely agree with you. Keep and it's, and it, it's, a, it's a big problem. Hey, um, one of the reasons that uh, I was eager to chat with you is because you see through all the nonsense. And in there are certain trends that aren't really trends at all. I'm thinking of uh, the summer of the shark, when they were making a big deal about all these Americans getting eaten by sharks. It turned out that there were no more shark attacks that year summer than uh, than in a typical summer. Then um, when there was some, that supposed trend of a whole bunch of uh, Americans going to resorts in places like the Dominican Republic and Putacana uh, dying from these mysterious illnesses, turned out that that was no more of a trend than it usually right. is. Um, where do you what is the reality versus the perception of inflation and the economy in general? Is it as actually actually as bad as most voters seem to think it is? Every piece of data that I've seen, and I try to look at as many as the U.S. government makes available, tells me that inflation is indeed at roughly 40-year highs. And worse, I don't see much reason to think that it's going to be brought down anytime soon at all, at least not to any significant extent, unless, and, and, and this is a really important point here, unless the Federal Reserve decides to jack interest rates up really high, decides to to tighten credit tremendously, and and essentially decides that killing inflation is so important that it's going to throw the economy into a fairly significant recession. Um, aside from that, 
it looks to me like the main sources of U.S. inflation are going to continue to push up prices. And, and here's where we get into a really big misconception about why we have inflation. Um, putting aside the, the admittedly important debate over whether it's mainly oil prices or, or, or whether it's mainly Biden's spending programs, the fact is that, that inflation has been so strong for so long lately precisely because so many Americans still have so much money to spend. And goods and services that are routinely described as being, quote, unaffordable, unquote, really turn out to be quite affordable for for the great majority of consumers and as long as that as that's the case you're going to have companies enjoying pricing power and they're going to exercise it because consumers the vast majority of them can pay and they are paying when, but inflation is an international problem, right? I mean, they're experiencing inflation in Great Britain and uh, in France and Germany, just as we are here in the United States, right? That's true. It is an international problem. But I think one point that is quite conveniently ignored, uh, by especially by folks who think that President Biden has done as good a job as humanly possible in keeping it under control here, is that is that indeed so much global inflation is due to high global energy prices. But what but what these folks <clears throat> repeatedly forget is that this is a country whose energy market shouldn't be terribly influenced by global energy trends because we should be energy self-sufficient. We have been before. We can be again. And we're we're being kept from achieving that goal by some really stupid federal policies that have inhibited fossil fuel production. When President Trump was in office, if inflation would tick upward one iota, there was a whole chorus of critics both on the left and on the right rushing to blame the Trump tariffs on China, the Trump tariffs on steel, timber, any other sort of protectionist trade policy that uh, President Trump instituted. Uh, One of the things that rarely gets talked about these days is that many of these Trump tariffs are still in place. Uh, Objectively, have the tariffs that were implemented by President Trump served to be at all inflationary? There is absolutely no way that tariffs, however steep, that were imposed in 2018 and 2019 could be responsible for inflation taking off like crazy in 2021. We have to remember that these tariffs were a one-time price increase. And what happened in the years right after they were put into effect was that because there was inadequate consumer demand as opposed to today, Companies that imported products mainly from China, but also companies that used foreign steel that that was getting tariff, they had to eat those uh, cost increases, mm. and they did, and that's and that's largely why these tariffs, even when we even when they were first imposed, had almost no effect on inflation rates, whatever. And whatever effects they did have were uh, they came to an end within a very few months. 
Uh, talking with Alan Tonelson, you could check out his work at the Reality Check, a uh, terrific blog, which uh, you can just Google Reality Check, uh, C-H-E-K. It comes right up or just right. Google Alan. Uh, exactly. Uh, or just Google <laughs> Alan Tonelson and it comes right up. Uh, last question about the economy, and then I want to get your sit- yeah. take on the Ukraine situation. Okay. A lot of folks have said that the best indicator of economic downturn is a Philadelphia baseball team winning the <laughs> World Series. We saw this in 2008. We saw this in 1980. We saw this in 1929, even before that. Are are you concerned? Look, the Phillies won last night. They gave the Astros right. a uh, drubbing. They shut them out. Mm-hmm. Now, now that they're ahead two games to one, are you concerned that a Phillies World Championship might portend significant economic downturn? I certainly wouldn't rule that. However, I would point out that the Phillies last won the World uh, well, they last won the World Series in not 2008 or 2009 when the last recession began. I can't even remember when they last won the World Series. Was that like 1982? Or no, it was 1980. Like 1980, and then a three-year recession okay, followed. Fair enough. That's, right. Okay, well, that's a really good point, and I, I need to study my Philadelphia baseball history much more carefully. <laughs> you know, Frank, at this point, I don't rule anything out. And and why same the heck here. not, right? Exactly. Hey, uh, we've As seen... they would say back in Philadelphia... Boo. <laughs> We've seen some states, California, for instance, New York, and uh, a few others, those are the two big ones, make legislative moves to move away from fossil fuels. And uh, in fact, by 2030, vehicles in these states are going to have to be electric. What do you see the movement away, the legislative move away from fossil fuels? doing to uh, the economy in the long term and in the short term? It's going to cause tremendous disruptions if it goes through. And I have my doubts precisely because the economic costs in the short and medium terms will be so formidable. And as, as we all should know, there's nothing that will deter politicians from pushing through policies as certainly as high short-term economic costs. So even when it comes to states like New York and California, which and, and the latter certainly has been very determined to push through a so-called green agenda on so many different fronts, um, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine um, – that determination lasting too much longer, precisely because these economic effects uh, will make them truly unaffordable and are also going to um, uh, to be tremendously damaging in terms of employment and um, and certainly going forward with the technology revolution that 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 we're going through with robotics and automation and artificial intelligence, we're going to need all the employment opportunities that create good middle class, as they call family wage jobs, that we can get. And the, the, these green industries, unfortunately, are not capable of actually providing them. One specific example, what nobody talks about is, if we do transition so completely into electronic, 
uh, excuse me, into electric vehicles, that's going to that's going to exact a tremendous toll on jobs because they use many fewer parts than mm. than conventional uh, than conventional conventional combustion engine vehicles. Many fewer parts, and that means many fewer jobs in the enormous U.S. auto parts making industry. Uh, it's very interesting and uh, certainly raises a lot more questions than I think uh, the proponents of this legislation have answered. Let's talk about the Ukraine situation. There was a lot of concern on the part of even people that are supportive of um, standing up against Putin in Ukraine about the amount of money and the amount of weapons that were being sent to Ukraine, which seemed to be unaccounted for. Well, now the U.S. military is conducting on-site inspections of weapons provided to Ukraine, and U.S. military inspectors in Ukraine are going to be there to ostensibly keep further track of weapons and equipment. Do you view this as an escalation of America's role in the Ukraine conflict, or is this simply a matter of the military making sure that the American taxpayers' money isn't wasted? Well, well, certainly... If we are going to send all of these weapons overseas, we do want to make sure that they're accounted for and and used by the folks who who we intend to use them, not only to make sure that U.S. taxpayer dollars are being wisely spent, but to guard as best we can against weapons leakage, because there are no doubt, well, one of the main reasons that these that this new monitoring has gone into effect is that there are many unscrupulous people in Ukraine and Ukraine's neighborhood who would be only too happy to get a hold of advanced weapons like this and sell them to all sorts of bad folks all around the world. So it's not only a matter of ensuring economic efficiency, it's a matter of strengthening national security. How do you view the uh, conflict in uh, Ukraine as having gone so far? Because I do feel like in the mainstream press, there's been two conflicting narratives. On the one hand, Mm -hmm. we're told the Ukrainian military is showing just incredible determination and they're embarrassing the Russian military every other day. And then uh, in the next news report, I I feel like we're being told, oh, but the United States has to give them another billion dollars here, another billion dollars there and a whole bunch of weapons and If things are going so well, it wouldn't seem that you'd need this constant flow of American money and weaponry. What that tells me and what that should tell everybody is that although the – Ukrainian, excuse me, the Ukrainian military with this enormous flow of very advanced Western weaponry has managed to prevent numerically superior Russian forces from making much greater inroads into Ukrainian territory, uh, still the Ukrainians haven't been able to achieve their stated goal of pushing the Russians out of Ukraine totally. And I don't think they're going to be able to do that in the foreseeable future or, frankly, even farther into the future than that. And that that not only worries me, it absolutely terrifies me because I take very seriously the idea that U.S. policy has been needlessly 
courting the risks of nuclear war. And I find that completely unconscionable and, like I say, terrifying because these risks are being run on behalf of a region or country that has had no strategic importance for the United States, whatever, and that has had no strategic importance for this country for the entire 20th century, for the entire time that Ukraine was under Soviet control. And I can't understand for the life of me what has changed to justify running that terrible, terrible risk. Uh, Neither do I. And what would you, if you were advising... President Biden or the Pentagon these days, what do you think America's role should be going forward, given what we've seen from the conflict uh, up until this point, knowing America's interests, seeing what the economic uh, impact of this war has been, seeing what the geopolitical impact has been, seeing the human toll of all these people mm-hmm. left homeless and all these people killed on the, both the Russian and Ukrainian side. What do you think we should be doing? The top U.S. priority has to be to eliminate any risk of nuclear conflict breaking out, again, on behalf of a country of no strategic importance to the United States, whatever. And in operational terms, what that means, putting the hammer on Volodymyr Zelensky's government to go to the negotiating table now before it's too late, before that nuclear threshold gets crossed somehow. And there are so many ways in which the conflict could escalate to that nuclear level and therefore draw in U.S. forces, which is the last thing that anybody should want. And quite frankly, the idea that the level of this nuclear risk is anywhere above zero is completely unacceptable and should be resoundingly rejected by the American people and their leaders. It was reported by NBC News on Monday that President Biden had a phone call with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and it got very heated, and it was a very tense exchange, and apparently Biden called Zelensky to relay news that he had secured a billion dollars in defense and humanitarian funding for Ukraine, and Zelensky apparently didn't express an ample amount of gratitude and then began listing more things that his country needed. Biden, apparently, if the NBC News report is to be believed, then raised his voice and said that the American people were already being very generous. I was very pleased to see this report, and I was thinking, all right, at least somebody is is reflecting the way I feel, which is I feel like the Zelensky folks uh, just keep asking for more, more, and more. I I can certainly understand their desire for more and more and more. I mean, they've suffered... You know, tremendous casualties, tremendous property destruction. The country has been ruined physically. It's being it's being ruined economically. Its economy is probably going to shrink by something by something like 30 percent this year. There's horrible privation. Winter is coming. I don't blame them for being very impatient. However, um, I, like you, was very was very pleased to hear at least this report about some degree of 
pushback. Biden backbone, yeah. right, um, because his first duty, as it happens, is not ensuring Ukraine's national security and not giving Ukraine a so-called blank check or even conveying the idea that, that, that it deserves this kind of a blank check, but it is advancing and protecting U.S. national interests. So again, this, this seems to have been one instance, if these reports were actually true, that President Biden actually took an America first uh, position. And I'm glad that he did, if he indeed did. Now, Alan Tonelson, it is always a treat talking with you. Thank you so much for the time. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Well, me too, Frank. Have a great rest of the show. Thank you. Uh, you can check Alan Tonelson out at his blog, Reality Check, C-H-E-K, and uh, just Google that. comes right up. Uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Color Me Bad. I want to sex you up. Ah, yes. Something I've heard from many of you in our audience. Uh, If you ever want to know what kind of bumper music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Or you can go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. A couple of quick notes here. One, I had told you the incredible true story. How when trick-or-treating with my son and my wife, I ended up with dog feces on my boot. And my wife would not permit me to bring these boots into our house. So they've rema- they remained on our front porch for a day, about 24 hours. So Rachel yesterday said, okay. It's been out there for 24 hours. You need to clean your shoe. And she said, here, take these paper towels, take this uh, this Lysol, take this cleaning product, uh, take this garbage bag. Do not bring those shoes in here unless every morsel of dog feces is removed from it. By the way, I think this is my cousin Deanna's dog because we went to her house first and then I did detect the smell shortly thereafter. So I get this, the the bulk of the poop off of this boot. And I, I, I keep cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. And I go in and Rachel has to inspect the boot. Now, I'm thinking I'm going to outsmart her here. And I should have, I've been married to her long enough to know that's not likely. So I give her my other boot, the one that was always clean to expect. She says, I don't believe this. Let me see the other one. 
So she takes a look at the other one and she says, no, this is there's still little specks of dog feces on here. And so she sends me out this time with toothpicks because with these boots and I don't know why they make boots like this. There's all these nooks and crannies that it's very difficult to remove something that's so encrusted from the boot. So now I'm sitting in there. And meanwhile, I got to leave for I had a dinner meeting and then I had uh, to come to work. And I'm sitting out there on my front porch with toothpicks taking out little clumps of dog feces. And I said, let me try something really innovative. There's this jack-o'-lantern that I made a couple of weeks before, and we have a candle in the jack-o'-lantern. Let me take candle wax from the jack-o'-lantern, pour it onto the bottom of my boot, and see if that will make the dog feces stick to it and and then take the wax off. Lo and behold, that didn't work. It only made wax stick to my shoe as well. So I keep on this toothpick, and this is going for 35, 40 minutes. And eventually, I submit this boot to my wife for her approval. Not acceptable, but then I benefited from my own incompetence. She said, all right, just give it to me. I'll do it. And she ultimately got it all removed. So I am now wearing those boots, and I have been warned, be careful where I step. Good advice for us all. Am I right? Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's been very interesting watching conservatives and people that want the Republicans to control the U.S. Senate contort themselves into a pretzel trying to explain why, in spite of whatever scandal comes Herschel Walker's way, they still want him to win. It's been equally interesting watching people that want a Democratic U.S. Senate contort themselves into a pretzel explaining why they think John Fetterman is still um, able-minded enough to be a senator. So I want to – and I was explaining to – I had dinner with a friend of mine yesterday, but I made the same point to my wife the other day. I feel like in this day and age, people don't care about anything, right? I I feel like there is nothing a candidate could say or do – that would disqualify them in the eyes of people that agree with them. Meaning, if you're a Republican and you really want a Republican vote in the U.S. Senate, you just don't care. What you're interested in is somebody that's going to vote your way on the key issues that you care about. Taxes, the Supreme, and, the, and same with the Democrats. Taxes, the Supreme Court, uh, you name it. Uh, gun control. You want somebody that's going to hand control of the chamber to your political party. And you essentially don't care what the what the deal is. So I want to try something interesting here. For the next 10 to 15 minutes, I want you to forget about the words Democrat and Republican. Pretend they don't exist. Pretend everybody runs for office just as people. That's it, okay? And it's been interesting to me because folks that don't want Herschel Walker to win and don't think he should win 
they keep hammering the point home of his uh, mental illness and the instances of his bizarre behavior. And they say, well, look, this is what happens when you have somebody with mental illness. I don't think this was better exemplified than when Richard Bay was on this show a couple of weeks ago talking about Herschel Walker. AOC is not crazy. Mm-hmm. There are crazy. Speaking of which, Herschel Walker, who has been diagnosed and and stated it himself that he has been diagnosed with something called um, uh, disassociative personality disorder, which is what Sybil had. You know, he has more than one personality. So maybe when he says, oh, yeah, I didn't pay for that abortion. That was my other personality that paid for Mm. the abortion. I mean, how could you put a candidate up who openly admits that they're mentally ill? I thought that was a really interesting comment, and I've been thinking about it ever since Richard made it. And I'm wondering, there's a lot of people in this country that suffer from mental illness, some more severe than others. Look, I don't know that everybody can, uh, you know, some people might be able to more easily relate to clinical depression than, say, um, the, the kind of multiple personality disorder that Sybil had. But I'm curious, do you think that if someone has been diagnosed as having a severe mental illness in line with that particular personality disorder. And again, I don't want this to be a Herschel Walker discussion, but I do want this to be a mental illness discussion. Should that disqualify you from running for office? Why or why not? On the other hand, a lot of the people that don't want John Fetterman to run keep pointing out that he doesn't exactly seem... To have, uh, you know, all 52 cards in his deck. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people talked about his unusual debate performance. Hi. Good night, everybody. That was how the debate began. And uh, Ari Fleischer, who, of course, uh, was a uh, served in the Bush White House. Now he's a I believe a contributor on Fox, if not uh, a contributor. He's certainly a regular guest on Fox. He was on Fox News talking about how Fetterman post stroke is simply not fit to be a senator. We all watched that debate, and we saw a man who was not capable of being an orator, a senator. The principal job of a senator is to listen and then articulate. They're not doers, they're talkers, and then they vote. That's the principal job. And anybody who's going to hire somebody, if your job is to be an orator and they watch that debate, they know that he's not qualified anymore. So I, I just think, who cares what his doctor put down in the letter? His doctor, who was a campaign contributor to him, we all saw it with our own eyes. It seems like what the Richard Bays of the world are saying is that if you have severe mental illness, that you're not qualified to be a senator. It seems like what the Ari Fleischers of the world are saying is if you're not, if your speech is not fully recovered from a stroke. You're not you're not equipped to be a senator. My question for you is, are either or both of those things disqualifying? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. And I'm particularly interested in hearing from people that say, no, neither are disqualifying. Uh, I think you should be able to have a uh, stroke, and even if you haven't fully regained your speech, 
be able to uh, run for office and do the best job you can in the U.S. Senate. And uh, at the same time, if you have mental illness, as long as you're not currently suffering from the kind of delusions that uh, lead you to pull a gun on your wife, you should be able to be in the U.S. Senate. I'm also eager to hear from folks that say, yes, both are disqualifying. Uh, I'm eager to hear from folks that say, yeah. You should not be able to serve in the Senate if you do not have the ability to uh, speak in a coherent manner without closed captioning and uh, so forth. And folks that might say that, um, yeah, if you have that kind of history of mental illness, maybe the U.S. Senate is not the place for you. What do you think? Are either or both of those disqualifying? I, I think I've been thinking a lot about this. And I've come to the conclusion, and I can be persuaded otherwise, but my answer is no. Neither of them are disqualifying. Now, I would not vote for John Fetterman for other reasons. I I don't want Fetterman because I think he's kind of an extremist. Had the Democrats nominated somebody like Connor Lamb in uh, Pennsylvania, that's somebody I'd be very comfortable with as a senator. Fetterman, I, I think, is way out of touch with not only Pennsylvanians, but Americans in general. So I wouldn't vote for him for other reasons. But I don't think we as a society should be shunning stroke victims or, in the case of Georgia and Herschel Walker, the mentally ill. Uh, Look, it's different if you're holding a gun to your wife's uh, head while you're actively campaigning on the campaign trail. I think that's a different situation. But if this stuff is in your past and you're getting the appropriate treatment necessary... I don't think mental illness is disqualifying either. So that's where I come down on this. Where do you come down on? 800-848-9222. All right. um, And this is why I am so glad to have such a devoted Twitter following. I want to thank the Twitter user Joe Collide. And I've just retweeted this at Frank Moreno. The only woman who wants to sex you up is one who wants money from you. No offense to your spouse. Dog feces, earwax, you're a troll. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. And uh, look, I can't disagree with you. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Rebecca in Brooklyn. Hello, Rebecca. Frank, I'm accusing you of being a thief. You stole my words. Your last word. I, I picked up the phone when you were busy talking about that, and I told the guy, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to repeat. Mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance. There's medication, thank God. If you take your medication, then you're balanced. Herschel Walker has a wonderful resume. You can't compare. There's no, there's no comparison between him and that Michigana in Pennsylvania. I take it you all know what Michigana means. Frank, I wish you all the best. Well, so, uh, Rebecca, so I understand yeah. that you think that uh, the mental illness with Herschel Walker in his past, that's not disqualifying. Do you no. think the stroke is disqualifying in the case of Fetterman? In his case, yes. There are people that make a wonderful recovery, thank God Almighty, from the stroke. We should never have a stroke. You know, God should watch over us. But he didn't make a recovery. He has a bad... Look at his resume, even before the stroke. Can you tell me one good thing about him? No, no, Well, again, but you're talking about his resume and his ideology. I want to have a discussion just about About his ability to do the job. Let's say he was somebody that you agreed with on every issue. Would you be okay with sending that person, as diminished as he might be, to the Senate? If 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 everything he said made sense, if he was if it was if he, if it was a sense 
responsible human being with a good resume, why should I say, oh, he had a stroke? Okay, so you're saying essentially the same thing I'm saying, which is that uh, neither a stroke nor mental illness should be disqualifying. I agree. What should be disqualified is your your behavior. Right, agreed, agreed, agreed. Thank you, Rebecca. 800-848-9222. It's interesting. I have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this and talking about this. Going back to the days of Dick Clark, Dick Clark was one of my favorite entertainers. I'm not talking about the cybersecurity czar in the Bush administration. I'm talking about Dick Clark from American Bandstand, who used to host the uh, Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve. And he had a stroke. And his brain fully recovered, but his speech did not. And a lot of people would make fun of Dick Clark every New Year's Eve for kind of the weird manner in which he would count down to um, midnight, right, every every year. I gave Dick Clark a lot of credit for that because I thought it took a lot of courage for Dick Clark, whose whole life was lived in the public eye, who was so used to being known as someone that spoke well, that looked handsome, and uh, to have that person, that same person, be willing to put his frailty and his... Um, the way that he spoke out there before the public, I thought that that was actually pretty inspiring to a lot of people that were recovering from a stroke. Now, again, I wouldn't vote for Fetterman for other reasons, but I'm curious, uh, putting aside their politics, is mental illness disqualifying? Is a stroke in the manner that Fetterman has suffered it? Is that disqualifying? 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. All right. As you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. Now, unfortunately, I have to say, after listening to Fetterman's performance, that it's likely disqualifying. And you're talking to someone who's had several family members suffer from major strokes, including my mother. Um, As far as Herschel Walker goes, your caller who said that it could be treated with medication is incorrect. Dissociative personality disorder is not something you can treat with medication. Okay, so who knows what uh, Herschel Walker's mental stability is? The guy is barely coherent. He's not very intelligent sounding, and I wouldn't vote for him under any circumstances. Do I think his mental illness is is disqualifying? Yes. No person who suffers from a severe mental illness should be in a public position. And the same for someone who suffered from a severe stroke. Unfortunately, Fetterman may recover over time, but – I wish there was a mechanism to replace him, which apparently there isn't, which is unfortunate. We need to be more careful about who we pick to be our nominees. I wish this had come out well before the uh, primary election because there was a much better candidate in in Connor Lamb who probably would have done better. Well, I said that. I I said that. I I think he would have done a great job. Thank you. Um, you know, it's funny. It, you may, Some of you, I think most of you, probably remember the 1972 presidential election. You remember who George McGovern's first running mate was. It was Thomas Eagleton, the, uh, the senator from Missouri, and he was the vice presidential nominee. He suffered from bouts of depression his entire life, his entire life. And um, this resulted in several hospitalizations which were kept secret from the public. And when they were revealed, it humiliated the McGovern campaign because not only did it reveal that Eagleton had been hospitalized, but that he had received electroshock therapy. 
And folks did not want a vice president who had received shock therapy. And I thought that was such a shame because I thought that uh, it sent the message to the hundreds of thousands, maybe more, of Americans that have battled clinical depression, even some that have been hospitalized for it, that, okay, you're not wanted in public life. I think we need um, the opposite view. In my view, we need to not have people that are mentally ill further alienate themselves for the pub- from the public. We need to be have- seeing that they can get better. And that if you get treatment and you recover from your bout with mental illness, you can then be a productive member of society again. Otherwise, if you treat the mentally ill as if they're a bunch of uh, unwashed lepers, I think they probably end up like David DePape, this uh, fella in California who clearly was mentally ill and uh, not getting treatment for whatever the nature of his mental illness is. And then he gets involved with these extremist groups and chooses to um, start uh, trying to assault politicians. I think that uh, neither mental illness nor stroke is disqualifying. We'll get to your calls in a second. 800 Alex Barnard, who is both a stroke victim and mentally ill, is here. <laughs> Um, well, first of all, I do agree with you that it should not disqualify either of them. Uh, a stroke, John John Fetterman realistically probably could recover from, fully recover from that stroke within a few months or so. And if Herschel Walker... Well, let's say he doesn't. Let's say he doesn't. I mean, still... It, Dick Clark never really recovered. Right. That still doesn't necessarily... Preclu- I don't think that necessarily precludes him from being a you know, a good senator or a bad senator, and neither does Herschel Walker's mental illness. What I think disqualifies Herschel Walker specifically is the guy's a complete idiot. He, well, right, that's your opinion, yeah. right? Well, no, but it's it's but, there's video of him saying that China's bad air will float into America's good right, air. Right, but that's not— George is really about to elect someone yeah. that's stupid? That's not Are you a, kidding me? Well, in your opinion, right? So uh, that's, not, that's not a mental illness issue. That's a you not— thinking he's intelligent issue, right? So that has right. nothing to do with the incidents of him, you know, pulling a gun on his wife, which he says, and I believe, were due to his bouts of uh, of mental illness. So, right. No, yeah, and I, I agree you with you. You feel the way about Walker that I think I feel about Fetterman, which is you wouldn't vote for him for other reasons that have nothing to do with mental illness. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, I'm asking folks to kind of put aside partisanship, and right, and not do what Rebecca did, not do what, what, what Alex sort of did there, and kind of just answer the question on its own. Would you vote for someone? Would you want someone? Let's say you agree with them on every issue. Would you want someone who has battled severe mental illness or is having difficulty recovering from a stroke and can't um, have a conversation without something like closed captioning. Would you want that person as your senator? 800-848-9222. I give credit to some extent to David, even though he likes Fetterman's politics, he was consistent. He said, no, they're both disqualifying. I think neither are disqualifying. 800-848-9222. Two two. Mark is in Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Hello. Hi, hey Frank. How you doing today, buddy? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. Good. Good. Uh, I had a stroke. I've been dealing with it since 2005. Um, let me tell you, it's 
story. And by by the way, let's stop pop for a minute. Frank, that was only a joke when I called you before a long time ago. And you remember what I asked you. And I, it was just a joke. I, I don't, I'm but sorry. it's really it doesn't really matter to the purposes of it this conversation. Matter, we'll, it we'll matters to me. But anyway. Okay. I, I, I don't remember it, but I forgive you. I, I thank you. I I I've been dealing with it since two thousand five. I had five bypasses, seven stents and a stroke during the surgery. I used to be an auctioneer. And uh, when my wife woke up and said I had a stroke, she just, my family just took back and cried. Uh, It took me six years to talk straight. When When I get out of the shower, I would curl my hair with a, with a razor. Seriously, I was that messed up. And I'm telling you right now, from 2005 to this time, I've had many physical therapists. I've done everything I can do. Sometimes I'll say, "What cut the heat on when I would say, cut the air on. I'll say, cut the cool air on when I mean, cut the heat on. I mean, I, I, I've got so many mental problems. And yes, I'm severely depressed of what I had that I don't have anymore. So um, as it relates to this discussion, Mark, should you be uh, disqualified from being in the U.S. Senate? Yes. You should. No, no. I should not be in the United States Senate at all. Really? Uh, that So yes. um, you think what you've suffered is such a hindrance to your cognitive ability that you don't think you could do the job of being a senator? No. Interesting. No. And I mean, I, really, it's not a problem with him. I I, I mean, I, I choose the other side. Right, right, because you probably agree I with that other person. For this guy. I felt sorry for this guy when he was doing this. Well, I, so, like, I think man, a lot of people did. Embarrassing. Uh, Mark, I, I have to run, but thank you. And I'm, I'm, I hope thank I wish you, so you the best of luck with your continued recovery. You know, um, it's um, that's very interesting. Mark says he should not go to the U.S. Senate, which was kind of a curveball. I didn't see that coming. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls. Uh, two open lines if you want to jump on board. No guests for the remainder of the show. So there's plenty of time for you and I to chat. And boy, do I have a lot of things to chat with you about. Believe you me. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is uh, Getaway, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, if you want to ever know what bumper music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, today is a banner day in the Morano household. Twofold. One, I will be purchasing a Powerball ticket today. Because the jackpot, the Powerball jackpot, is now $1.2 billion. Now, it's less if you take the lump sum. And then when the uh, state tax authorities and the IRS take a chunk out of it, it's significantly less. But let's say it's even half of that. It's, let's say it's $600 million. Um, let's say it's $500 million, okay? That's real money. That's real life-changing money. So I am not only going to be purchasing a ticket, I am going to be spending a substantial amount of time um, – in the tradition of Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking, I am not only going to purchase a ticket, but I'm going to spend a substantial amount of time picturing myself winning that. Hey, you never know. Lottery. Thank you. And I'm going to spend a significant amount of time in my brain planning out how I am going to spend that money. And I believe that that will, the vibes that I am putting out there will help me hopefully get the jackpot. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. By the way, I don't want to embarrass her, but I heard that one of our listeners, Donna from Huntington, in the last Powerball drawing, she was actually a big winner. She won $12. $12. Wow. So you got to be in it to win it. And uh, I am going to be buying a ticket, and I'm hoping to win. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, honestly. And you may think I'm joking about this. I am buying a ticket, and then aside from my wife, if I win, well, actually, by the time the drawing is, she's asleep by then anyway. So, yeah, I am not going to tell anybody that I've won until I am on the radio at this time tomorrow. So really? I will be announcing tomorrow in 23 hours time whether or not I have won the Powerball jackpot or whatever prize I won. I mean, sometimes it's not the jackpot. Sometimes it's five numbers and you get something, whatever the case may be. So I will make that announcement exclusively on the radio tomorrow. Now, chances are I probably won't win. But chances are last Thursday that you wouldn't have had the Take 5 lotto in New York have the same numbers midday and in the evening. And you know what? It happened, didn't it? Let's see. I also, uh, it is a banner day in the Morano household because my wife um, was uh, saying to me over the weekend... You're always you always get upset when I tell people you don't cook. Why don't you cook a meal for Carmine and I one day this week? I said, "Okay. <laughs> I am going to do it on Wednesday." So, today I am responsible for the cooking in the Morano household. I have a collection of cookbooks. I have Paul Servino's cookbook with his wife Dee Dee. I have Ralph Nader's mother's cookbook. I have David Burke's cookbook, and I am going to be taking – I have some vegetarian cookbooks as well. I am going to be taking a an appetizer, an entree, and a side. We'll probably skip dessert because both Rachel and I are trying to watch our figure. And a side from each of these three cookbooks, and I will be responsible for dinner today. So those are my two big plans today. Powerball. It stinks in here. And um, – and dinner. So that's that. Uh, I think it's going to work out 
really well on both counts. I have to be honest. 800-848-9222. Now, if you're just tuning in, John Fetterman, who's running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, has consistently been attacked as being not able to function in the U.S. Senate because he's clearly altered by the stroke that he suffered. My question for you, irrespective of his politics, is that stroke disqualifying? If he's not if he's not yet fully recovered in terms of speech, should that disqualify him from the job? And again, let's assume you agree with him on everything. Is that stroke disqualifying? 800-848-9222. Herschel Walker has an admitted history of severe mental illness. Let's say you agree with him on everything. Is that disqualifying? I'd love to hear your take on either or both. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joseph calling from the... uh, of the state of Georgia. Hello, Joseph. Hey, how you doing, Frank? First of all, I got to compliment you that you're a radio talk show host and also you're a chef. You have two qualifications. That's amazing. Well, I so haven't cooked I anything say, yet. Uh, we'll see. We'll, uh, but we'll hopefully, hopefully by this time tomorrow, Joseph, I will not only be a billionaire, but I will have both of those titles to my name. Amen. God bless you. Here's my, here's my thought. My thought is that every single job requires qualifications. You need to be qualified to do the job. A plumber doesn't necessarily know how to cook, and a cook doesn't know how to do plumbing. Everybody needs to be qualified. Now, if somebody went, is running for office, and he's holding a high position that affects uh, a, a big portion of society, I, yes, 100%, he could fully recover. It's very possible, but it could go both ways. The same is with mental illness. Any illness, you could fully recover and be a functioning human being in society. But not always do they fully recover. I think that a qualified professional should do a testing on him and see if he's actually capable of, of, of doing that role, which they should have done for Biden as well. And that should be the determining factor and not, not just somebody's opinion. Oh, disqualified for life because he had a mental illness or a stroke. No, it's a qualified professional should actually evaluate that person and see if he's capable of doing the job. That's what, that's what I think. It's very simple. Well, Joseph, that sounds very reasonable uh, to me. I appreciate that, uh, Joseph. Thank you. 800-848-9222. You know what I'd love to do is uh, I am on Twitter, as I mentioned, at Frank Morano, and I have tweeted a Listen Live link uh, to the show. um, And I would love it if everybody listening, now that Elon Musk owns Twitter and I feel like I'm not being shadow banned as often, would find the Listen Live link where uh, I have the link for folks to listen to the live stream of the show and just retweet it. And I am just curious if that leads to an uptick in the number of people that um, that are live streaming this program. Uh, so find me on Twitter at Frank Morano and retweet it or just go on Facebook and uh, and share that at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. Uh, your program today has a very interesting point, but I am going to give my opinion in the question that you both regarding mental illness uh, in the Senate or Congress. In my opinion, the standards should be established from the lawmakers to actually see if this person, through doctor's opinion, after 
looking at the fact if this person will be able to deal with the country needs to be dealt with, for example. It's not just a matter of partisanship, okay? I am a Democrat. I don't know whether if I will continue being a Democrat and shift parties. But at this point, I'm voting Republicans because of the issues that have to be taken care of. Those people that go to the Senate or any of these uh, political positions have to understand that they will have to deal with the many issues that we have, like economy, inflation, budget distribution, law and order, energy, education, immigration. If someone has trouble, even like Mr. John Featherman, our person worker, I don't think that they are qualified to take mm-hmm. care of the issues. We have to focus and, and, and what about Marianne? What about in the uh, case of Herschel Walker? Do you feel the same way? Well, if he has this mental illness that prevents him from actually um, doing his job in these matters, I think he should be disqualified too. Interesting. Uh, like I say, a standard should be established in Frank. Ba- thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Let me try and get a few other folks in here. 800-848-9222. Patricia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patricia. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, I'm kind of like torn. This whole thing is like a little weird. Should we like go to a surgeon and that surgeon has like serious mental issues and wants to trust this person? How about like I want to take an Uber ride and the president shows up? I'm not getting in that car. I don't know what to say. (laughs) Well, I don't know about the president's driving ability. Yeah. All right, I'm like just making a joke here. Yeah, no. How I about like if Harvey Weinstein got freedom and he decided to run on like a women's issue platform? You think I'm voting for him? Well, but Patricia, yeah, but that's that's a little different, Patricia. In the case of being a wise guy, no, no, I get. Hey, I like that. I'm all for uh, entertainment. I'm an entertainer myself, Patricia. I'm all for that. But um, I I get what. Go ahead. You're terrific. You are so hysterical. I love you. Well, Well, thank you. I love you too, Patricia. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, in the case of Weinstein running on women's issues. Clearly, that's an example of his behavior being disqualifying. I don't think you're not voting for Weinstein. First of all, I mean, look, Weinstein's not running for anything, except, you know, he's running to the commissary in the prison where he's currently being housed. But um, I don't think that's an issue of him recovering from either a stroke or dealing with uh, a past that includes mental illness. 800-848-9222. Jennifer is in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Frank. Hi. Um, I, I think personally that most everyone in politics um, has something that could probably be uh, some sort of diagnosis that could be found in the DSM-5, um, whether it's just narcissism or um, some sort of you know personality disorder not otherwise specified. I mean, I think literally most of them um, have something. Um, I would agree with you, but I mean, there are degrees of mental illness, right? I mean, if you're if if you are a narcissist, maybe maybe, you know, that doesn't necessarily manifest itself into potentially violent tendencies, for instance. What I was going to say is I think um, I 
couple of things. First of all, I, I look at mental illness. I could say that I think you have to be mentally ill to think that a child could be aborted uh, a day before it's due to be born or the day it's supposed to be birthed or after it's been born. And that's Raphael Warnock. So that's the way I look at it. I look at also past behavior um, is not always indicative of future behavior if, in fact, interventions have been made. And you look at the woman um, that Sybil's, uh, you know, character was based on, for instance. She went on to live a very productive life. And I know people that live near Herschel and say he's a very, very good man. He lives a very normal life. Um, and I, th- I think you have to look at it. And also I have, um, as far as, the st- so in other words, if he was still going up the rails and he had been in last year or the year before, you know what I mean? I would look at it differently. I think there's maybe some instability mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. no fault of his own, you know what I mean? Because people don't sure. ask for that. Sure. But, so I don't say that to be damning in any way, but I think from what I have seen and what I have heard, his ability to, he stayed very level-headed through all this. And, um, you know, he's had a lot of stuff thrown his way, which is not surprising, um, the big October surprises and so forth. And I think that when, when we hear things um, about people coming out, we can't always take that it's, you know, true. Um, and he, the other thing I'll give him credit for, he's been very forthcoming about his history. So I think depending on who the person is and how they've handled their situation. And the one thing that does concern me with Fetterman and whether he's a Republican and independent or that um, if you know anything about stroke, it's not just what they're talking about. It's not just they're saying it's not his cognition. It really is because aphasia is, affects everything. It affects his whole functioning, and you can see that, and that's why people were concerned. And that is also a condition that does not always get better with speech therapy and stuff, although it can. But down the road, it can certainly worsen and can affect your overall mental well-being. So, uh, so if I'm are, if I'm hearing uh, you correctly, it sounds like what you're saying is you have to judge each one of these instances on a case by case basis based on the severity of each individual situation. Yes, and what what they're doing, like, and again, I think Fetterman would do himself a favor. I think if he didn't have anything to hide, he would literally you know, be more forthcoming with, say, the neurologist information and so forth instead of, you know, a note from a donor doctor. Um, I don't think that serves him well. Um, but, yeah, I think absolutely. And that's why I said if Herschel's, you know, recent past, or not even recent, but his, you know, had been different or if his functional behavior was different, then I would have a concern. But, um, you know, and whoever it would be, you know what I mean, any of these situations. But like I, I said, I think most of them are all half nuts down there anyway. So. <laughs> I can understand. I, I think a lot of people that have uh, served in elective office might agree with you. Jennifer, thank you. Hey, uh, speaking of um, the electoral landscape, there's one fascinating story that I just did want to at least mention. And we'll see what happens. But uh, Israel just wrapped up its uh, elections there. And what we are seeing in Israel is just wild, meaning the former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and his right-wing allies look like they have won just enough seats to form a government, to form a narrow majority in Israel's legislature, the Knesset, and that will that will mean a comeback, in all likelihood, for Israel's longest-serving and most polarizing leader, Benjamin Netanyahu. This election yesterday in Israel is the fifth 
in the last three years. And it was almost completely a referendum on Netanyahu, who until last year had ruled Israel for 12 consecutive years. And according to the exit polls, um, it looks like Netanyahu's party and their party's allies, they were able to secure either 61 or 62 seats, which would be a majority. This is a tremendous, if this happens, this is a tremendous comeback for Netanyahu because not only was this somebody that um, was uh, thrown out as prime minister, but he's on trial for corruption. And so now um, they can pull the plug on this corruption prosecution. And it's really so interesting to me what's going on around the world. We see in Brazil, Lula, he was elected as the new president of Brazil. Three years ago, he was in prison for corruption. Uh, and now he's the new president again. They brought him back. And they said at least enough voters, again, both of these guys, very polarizing, one right wing, one left wing. But the voters, and at least enough of them, appear to have said, we don't care about that corruption conviction. We think it's trumped up. And we're bringing him back. And it's interesting to me because in the United Kingdom, after throwing out Boris Johnson, after Liz Truss uh, was was ousted as prime minister, they almost brought him back. Well, I don't know if they almost brought him back. There was at least talk of him coming back. And it really leads me to think of the United States. Is the United States going to be the third country to take a world leader that had been um, thrown out and had been plagued with a lot of legal problems – and put that person back into office. Of course, I'm talking about President Trump. And I wonder, is this a new trend of bringing back world leaders with legal problems? I don't know. 800-848-9222. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in just a moment. There are one, two, three, four, five, six open lines if you want to come on board. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
It was on this day in 1963 where the South Vietnamese president, Diem, was assassinated in 1963. And uh, this song, uh, 19, is just terrific. I know Curtis Lee would play this song a lot, and uh, it's terrific. And uh, it uh, really captures what was going on in the country in terms of the concern about dying in Vietnam. And I have to say, you know, they say history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And with the reports that we're sending inspectors uh, to Ukraine, I do wonder if this is the beginning of another Vietnam situation. Obviously, there are many key differences, not the least of which is um, we're dealing with a nuclear-armed Russia here. But um, I have been thinking a lot more about Vietnam, given that uh, this was that day in history and so, so on and so forth. All right. We're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. We spent a great deal of time talking about the Director of National Intelligence UFO report last summer. And essentially, I don't want to I don't want to over overstate it, but it turned out to be kind of a nothing burger. It was something that was very a lot of people were looking forward to seeing, a lot of people were wondering what was in it, and it really didn't do anything to enlighten anybody, I don't think. Well, I don't know if you know this, but there is another UFO report that is coming out this week. The enduring debate about whether UFOs are caused by extraterrestrial beings will once again be front and center this week as U.S. intelligence agencies will provide Congress with an updated report on UFO incidents over the past year. Meanwhile... It appears that other more recent incidents are being attributed to weather balloons or airborne clutter, foreign surveillance. That's according to one U.S. official. The director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, has until Monday to provide Congress with its first annual unclassified update on unexplained aerial phenomena. That's the new term that we use for UFOs. And that includes all new UAP incidents over the past year and any previously unreported incidents. The report was required by the 2022 defense bill that mandated that the DNI provide an annual declassified update and a classified annex by October 31st. Isn't it interesting that they always pick that they pick Halloween for this Uh, classified annex by October 31st of every year? Through 2026, the update follows the report that I mentioned, which was released in June of 2022. I am not expecting much from this. I don't think that they're going to include any smoking guns in an unclassified report. If the government does know more than it's letting on, and I tend to think that they do. If the government does know more than it's letting on, I can't see them saying, oh, well, Congress said we have to uh, reveal this to the public. Here you go. Especially the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon are historically known for their secrecy. So it's unclear how many new reports will be included in the upcoming update. But uh, a U.S. official told ABC News that the most recent UAP incidents can be explained as a mix of weather balloons, airborne clutter and foreign surveillance. You see, they're already kind of priming the public 
to not expect anything groundbreaking. Meanwhile, on the other end of the equation, uh, an incident in Brazil, which we've talked about before, is getting a lot more attention. There was a big article in the New York Post. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but there's a new um, documentary. I'm not sure if it's a documentary or documentary series uh, that out of Brazil, speaking of Brazil and the election that took place there, a bizarre UFO case that has historically been called Brazil's Roswell is setting the Internet abuzz amidst rumors that video of a captured creature may exist and could soon be released. The so-called Vargainha incident, which is an alleged UFO crash, an extraterrestrial encounter, and a subsequent military cover-up, made all sorts of headlines in 1996 and sparked a media frenzy in Brazil despite official government denials that anything unusual had occurred. This remains Brazil's most famous UFO case. And it sparked a wave of UFO tourism to this locality where many residents to this day insist that the Brazilian military captured two alien beings and threatened locals to keep quiet. So more than a quarter century later, Interest in this case has been renewed after the release of a documentary called Moment of Contact, which sees filmmaker James Fox, who we're scheduled uh, to talk to next week, and I'm really looking forward to that, return to this small town in Brazil and interview eyewitnesses, experts, and officials. But uh, remember, we spoke with someone that analyzed one of the photos here, and that person said the photo from what he could tell, was genuine. So if you're not familiar with the story, what happened was in January of 1996, locals in this Brazilian town reported seeing a strange cigar-shaped object about the size of a school bus slowly fall from the sky and crash in a field. Carlos de Souza witnessed the crash, and he spoke to a researcher on camera back in 1996. Quote, it was floating and slowly losing altitude. It looked like a washing machine struggling, fighting to keep its altitude. The side of it was completely torn, and it had white smoke coming out of it. It wasn't black like from a fire. At the time, I thought it was like an aircraft in trouble, uh, an airplane, so I decided to follow it. 26 years later, this fellow who said that, Mr. D'Souza, and the filmmakers returned to the crash location just up a hill from a small white farmhouse where he broke down in tears. When I arrived at the site on this very spot, I observed a lot of debris and a lot of other pieces. When I got out of the car, I immediately smelled ammonia like rotten eggs. A very strong smell, so strong that I had to cover my nose with the shirt I was wearing. So D'Souza said he straightaway realized it was something very different from what he was expecting. So um, within minutes, D'Souza said military trucks arrived from a nearby army base, ordered him to leave, and they threatened him with guns. Now, soon after that, residents in this Brazilian town were stunned as a large military presence on the town cordoned off several blocks and prevented anyone from entering. A group of girls that were teenagers at the time made headlines 
they claim they stumbled across a strange creature in broad daylight around 3.30 in the afternoon. The being, which was huddled next to a wall by a clump of weeds in a vacant grass-covered lot, was described as about four feet tall with brown, oily skin, V-shaped feet, a large head, and huge red eyes. It all happened in Brazil. Very similar to Roswell. Now, the Brazilian military... They said an official inquiry had concluded that the girls had actually encountered a homeless, mentally unstable man (laughs) covered in mud. I don't buy that. You don't think these girls, and we know their names, they're now adults, they're they're in the documentary. You don't think these girls could have told the difference between a bizarre creature and a homeless man covered in mud? Please. Please. So I'm looking forward to seeing this documentary. It's called Moment of Contact, and I'm uh, really uh, looking forward to interviewing the filmmaker behind it. Um, And uh, I have been fascinated by this case since I first heard about it back in 1996. And I think it really is, in some respects, Brazil's Roswell. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing about that much more than I am about reading this report from the Director of National Intelligence. If you want to weigh in on that, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment uh, on uh, anything we've covered thus far. Coming up next hour, hey, um, it looks like Paul Newman, even though he's been gone for quite a few years, He's got a new book coming out. That's pretty interesting. We'll talk about that. And uh, Maya Rudolph is um, has one of the most bizarre complaints I've ever heard any celebrity have. I'll tell you what it is. Your phone calls, 800-848-9222 uh, on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I think a lot of people know who uh, Maya Rudolph is, right? She uh, was in Wine Country. She was uh, on Saturday Night Live for a time. She's a comedic actress. She was in Bridesmaids. She's the bride, I believe, in Bridesmaids. She's great in that. She's very funny, a very funny actress. And uh, she's gotten a lot of great roles over the last, uh, I don't know, last 15 years or so. Been ubiquitous on both television and in motion pictures. Very popular comedic actress. Okay. I'm reading this interview uh, that she did in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And I have to tell you, I found it bizarre. Um, and, and again, I am someone 
who believes that uh, celebrities do not sacrifice their right to be treated as humans just because they've chosen to spend a bit of their life in the public eye. I, you know, I was watching a little bit of Bill O'Reilly's weekly appearance with Chris Cuomo. Isn't that interesting that O'Reilly is going on with Chris Cuomo every week now? And they were talking about the Pelosi situation, and basically Bill said, and this is part of what his uh, new book is about, basically Bill said, well, this all has to do with celebrity, right? I mean, when you become a celebrity, this is the kind of the contract that you make with the world, is that there are going to be people that are that are nice to you just because you're a celebrity, I'm paraphrasing, or that want to hurt you just because of celebrity. And he put the Pelosi situation in that context. I don't necessarily buy that. You know, I recognize there are certain elements that you have to deal with if you're a celebrity, but I don't think that being a celebrity is an excuse to treat people poorly. I look at some of the things that have been said about Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen over the last week since they announced that they are ending their marriage, and it just it makes me shake my head. How can anybody say this stuff? And I'm not going to repeat any of it, but all I'm thinking is divorce is hard enough. And I can't imagine having to go through not only a divorce, but go through it in the public eye where these people that don't know you, that have never met you, are passing judgment on this. I, I Similarly, I mentioned this to Bernard McGurk's uh, children when I saw them the other day. And his son and his daughter, they are not public people. They never asked to be in the public eye. And yet, it's so difficult to lose a parent to begin with. And yet, they're having to go through this whole thing, their grieving process, publicly. And I I told them, I can't imagine what that must be like for them. It's got to be very challenging on the one hand. It's got to be maybe rewarding on the one hand because there's a lot of strangers willing to offer you their support and their well wishes. But sometimes you just want to grieve privately. And when you're... The family member of somebody that's famous, as Bernie was, you don't get the opportunity to do that. So, that being said, I found this interview that uh, Maya Rudolph did in the Wall Street Journal to be very strange. So, in this interview with the Journal, the actress recalled the moment that the longstanding talk show host, David Letterman, broke her heart... And left her feeling uncomfortable as she admitted she didn't know how to handle the situation. Now, that's the first thing I saw in the article. I'm thinking, whoa, what did he do? Did he do something sexual? Because Letterman has a history of, of that kind of thing. And her explanation was even more bizarre. Quote, I did not have a good time she said of her TV appearance on with David Letterman in 2009. And revealing exactly what Letterman had done to evoke this response, Rudolph continued, quote, he said my name wrong, and I just sat there like I grew up my whole life in love with you, and now my heart is broken, and I'm sitting here embarrassed and humiliated. Humiliated? Embarrassed? I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to come up with something funny to say. My public persona muscle wasn't strong yet. So the actor and comedian 
went on to acknowledge that more than a decade after the incident, she's gotten much better before explaining to the Wall Street Journal, when I'm uncomfortable, I try to be funny. Now, it's great that she is better able to deal with this kind of thing, but I don't understand this at, at all. Um, and so here is the introduction that uh, David Letterman uh, makes in 2009 that so humiliated and embarrassed her. Our uh, next guest is a uh, talented actress. She has a, a, a new film entitled Away We Go. It opens uh, June 5th in selected cities. Please welcome the lovely Amaya Rudolph, ladies and gentlemen. So did you hear what he said? Did you catch that? Did you catch that, Matt Blaze? Did you hear the mispronunciation? It sounded like he said Amaya. That's what he said. But that if I would have heard, if that was me, I would have thought of if he went and uh, introducing a Matt Blaze. Right, especially because that's how Letterman speaks, right? right? He, he does kind of include an errant, um, you know, before saying a person's name. It's like right. I do, kind of. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought of like, oh, he pronounced my name wrong. Yeah. Not at all. Right. Let's welcome uh, Kenneth. Yeah, right? exactly. It, to say that that was humiliating, I think is again, I don't want to say, sit here and judge what somebody should be embarrassed about. You're embarrassed about what you're embarrassed about. I wouldn't have even noticed. Do you know how many people call me up and say the wrong name? My mentor, my hero, Joe Franklin, I have eight signed books from him. I think five of them he has signed to the wrong name. Some are Frank Romano, some are Frank Marino, some are, you know, whatever else. And, um, you know, I was flattered just to be able to be friends with Joe and be honest, Joe, and get books from him. And later in that same interview, David Letterman, I think, realizes that he made a mistake in his introduction. And by the way, I want to mention in that introduction, he called her a very talented actress. Before calling her Amaya Rudolph. And um, he realizes he made a mistake. And this is what he says to Maya Rudolph during that interview. I'm sorry that I mispronounced your name. I'm just a boob. There's no excuse for it. <laughs> and from the bottom of my heart, I sincerely apologize. Thank you, Dave. Yes. Now, that's minutes later. Don't you think that's a sufficient enough apology that you wouldn't be talking about this 13 years later. Now, again, sometimes an insignificant incident in your world might be very significant in mine. So I I get it. I'm not trying to sit here and cast judgment on anybody. It's really just more curious to me. I find it bizarre. Do you think like during the break she said to him, you mispronounced my name or somebody told him you mispronounced her name or... I mean, how would he even know? Because, like we both said, it's the way he speaks. Right. Most people thought he was saying "uh." Right. And in two thousand nine, for her to not to her for her to say her public muscles weren't strong enough yet. In two thousand nine, she's been around for a while. At that point, she was on SNL in like the early two thousand. Right. She did as good as it gets in nineteen ninety seven with Jack Nicholson. Right. So how is it like all of a sudden? I guarantee you, Jack Nicholson still doesn't know. Her <laughs> right. But it's like, it wasn't like she wasn't in the public. It's not like she's a brand new actress who isn't used to being on a a nightly talk show, night show. I don't understand how her public persona muscles 
weren't up to par to take David Letterman going, I'm introducing Amaya Rudolph. I just, I, weird. I, I don't understand. And Letterman has done a lot of things that have made people uncomfortable over the years, and I get all that. I don't understand this one. Uh, why she's talking about this 13 years later, and again, I'm not trying to pile on here, but he, he, at first, I had to watch that clip multiple times before I realized that he was saying it incorrectly. And then he apologizes profusely. I don't understand why she was humiliated. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. All this time later, even after he apologized, she's essentially kind of, I don't want to say that she's bad-mouthing him, but it's certainly she's not praising him. She's saying he was kind of a jerk. And I don't see why David Letterman should have his reputation further dragged through the mud for something so minor. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. I found the whole interview, of all things to focus on, very odd. Very odd. I thought I thought that in general it's a bit much. But again, she's an actress. Maybe. Uh, but someone getting your name wrong broke your heart. What? I don't understand that at all. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Larry is on Long Island. He's been patiently waiting. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. Just a couple of things. Uh, going back to the subject of uh, people leaving their cars running. To all you car thieves out there, may I suggest, on Long Island especially, uh, it's the equivalent, if you're a car thief, of going to a buffet, 7-Elevens. Everybody and their mother leaves the car running to go in. It's a revolving door. I've never seen it anywhere else like at 7-Elevens. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So you're giving a little advice to the car thieves out there. I am reaching out and just trying to help them. Look, we all have to make a living. Um, but I want to just mention, you just mentioned Joe Franklin. And I'm in my, I'm close to 70 now. Um, I used to watch his TV show. I never thought he was a great entertainer. Um, I never saw it. And then I was a musician, as I mentioned to you one time. I did this for 40 years on weekends. I was a club debt musician. He was the host in Hempstead at the Holiday Inn. There was this big, big party. It was a sports award affair. Frank, he killed. I'm telling you, I have never heard or seen anybody more funny than Joe Franklin. It flipped me out. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I had no idea. Well, None. I, I uh, completely agree with you, Larry. I was a huge fan of his TV show. I did find it entertaining, but a couple of things that you got to keep in mind with that TV show. One, he was doing um, really uh, oftentimes five episodes in a day, right? So it was almost really? like an assembly line where he was wow. churning through these guests. Sometimes it was three, sometimes it was two, but very often it was five. He would churn through these guests and try and get through these shows. And uh, I've been. Me, please, please remind me. Was it a half hour or an hour show? It was an hour. Most of the time it was, it was an, an hour. hour. Yeah. But he also did also uh, radio. So some, sometimes they would do three three shows in a day. Sometimes they would do two. Uh, sometimes they would do five. So he was going through these quickly. 
And a lot of the the jokes that he would do uh, when you saw him as an MC, those are jokes that he would always do at live appearances, whereas he couldn't do the same material on television every day. It's almost like a stand-up that has a, 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 um, whatever, what do they call it, a strong five or strong ten and they or tight ten. And then they they can do that whenever they perform, but if they go on TV every day, they can't do that. So I think maybe that explains a little bit of the of the dichotomy there, Larry. And he was and he was totally clean, totally clean. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Joe would always love to tell the story of the one time he got on trouble. I would say, Joe, did you ever get in trouble on uh, television? Uh, great question. I actually got in trouble one time on television. They, I told a joke which uh, some people didn't find uh, appropriate at all. What was the joke, Joe? Well, you know, you had a, a situation where A&P, Stop and Shop and A&P, the grocery stores, they were merging. And I said uh, they're going to uh, merge and become Stop and P. And, uh, you know, that was people didn't find that appropriate. Then there was... One other incident, you remember in those days, and he'd rub his hands together, right? In those days, uh, you would have all these cigarette advertisements. People uh, don't believe that now. They don't, can't picture it now, but on radio and television, you'd have all these cigarette advertisements. And uh, there were advertisements for camels. And believe it or not, uh, back in those days, you would actually have commercials that would say something like, uh, eight out of ten doctors prefer camels. The other two stuck with women. I mean, uh, those are the kind of jokes that you, you can't say nowadays. And uh, back then, you couldn't say it either. But I got in trouble. There was one time. There was one time. One, just one other time, I got in trouble for uh, making a joke about a uh, a doctor that was uh, sleeping with his patient. A very b- big story. Doctor actually got suspended, and uh, he was uh, sleeping with his patients. Oh, I said, Joe, that, I don't think that's a big deal. I feel like that happens all the time. No, 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 no. This guy was the top veterinarian in all of New York. So stuff like that. Um, he would use those jokes all the time, right? He'd, he'd use these same jokes for 50, 60, 70 years every day of his life. I mean, I have them all committed to memory. Um, you know, when he would then make jokes about how old he was, he would always uh, say, um, oh, I, you know, I'm so old. Uh, I was so old. The uh, dead When I came around, the Dead Sea was only sick. I mean, I'm the guy that when I interviewed Moses, I told him, he told me he had a headache. I told him to take two tablets. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of a thing. But uh, I appreciate you mentioning all that, Larry. One thing real quick, if I have a second. Yeah, sure. Um, you were talking about horror movies the other night. And I went back after probably 20 or 30 years. Um, it was noted to be the worst horror film ever made. The guy that produced it, a guy named Ed Wood. Yeah, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Plan 9 from Outer Space. You saw, you saw the movie? Of course, yeah. Fantastic movie. Bela Lugosi died in between. No, I'm well Outer aware. Space. And, uh, you know, again, I, I mentioned on, um, on, on uh, Friday or Monday that um, the worst horror movie itself is really not that. But if you go with what has the worst rankings of a horror movie... There are horror movies that are considered worst. Uh, there's one film called One Missed Call. Plan 9 from Outer Space is actually kind of entertaining because it's so campy. But uh, I have not seen the film One Missed Call. But they say that's the uh, worst horror movie ever made and has no redeeming value whatsoever. And I assume you've seen the film, Ed Wood, right, Larry? Yes. Yeah, so that is a classic. I mean, he, made, he, made a, he made a lot of movies. I mean, he was... 
he was out there. No, no doubt. But that Tim Burton film, Ed Wood, is a real classic. And not only if you're a wrestling fan, is it great to see George the Animal Steel, who didn't get a lot of great acting roles, playing Tor Johnson in that film, um, who no ultimately clue. achieved the ultimate degree of fame uh, by becoming a Halloween mask. But it's great to see Johnny Depp, uh, Bill Murray, and Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi in just a, a great, great film, a wonderful cast, as brilliantly made. And oh, it strikes me as the kind of film that Ed Wood re- would have really liked having made about himself. But uh, if people haven't seen that, I recommend they see uh, the film Ed Wood first and then see Plan 9 because I think it gives them a greater appreciation for the, uh, for the film. The other movie? What's the other movie you just mentioned? Ed Wood. No, the other movie, Beyond, what you, you said. Oh, oh the, what they say is the worst movie of all, all time uh, is from 2008. The worst horror film is One Missed Call. One Missed Call. I got to check it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, apparently, it's got no no redeeming value. I haven't seen it just because I don't have the, <laughs> the 90 minutes to spend. Thank you, Larry. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Beastie Boys singing Intergalactic, one of the great songs about interstellar travel ever. Uh, Taking your calls, uh, talking about this situation involving Maya Rudolph, uh, she said she was hurt because David Letterman mispronounced her name. I do not see the big deal, and I am floored. And I'm a fan of Maya Rudolph, not a huge fan, but I'm a fan enough. I am floored that she has been carrying this with her for 13 years. And this weighs so much on her consciousness that she actually spoke about it in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you want to talk about a mispronunciation. Let's talk about uh, what John Travolta did at the Academy Awards back in um, 2014. When he introduced Adina Menzel from Wicked and from a bunch of other shows, you remember? Do you remember how John Travolta, who's a great guy, by the way, uh, the one time I met him, I feel confident saying that, when John Travolta introduced Adina Menzel? There will always be a special place in my heart for the movie musical and for the songs that create their most memorable moments. Here to perform the Oscar-nominated, gorgeously empowering song, Let It Go, from the Oscar-winning animated movie Frozen, please welcome the wickedly talented one and only Adele Dazim. Adele Dazim. Now that's a mispronunciation. And she had to go and sing after that. I mean, that that I could see you thro- throwing off your game. But uh, I think everybody had a sense of humor about it. Adina Menzel, John Travolta, and I suspect that five years from now, Adina Menzel will not be doing interviews about how 
John Travolta broke her heart by calling her Adele Nazim. You know what was fun about that? After that, they developed a John Travolta name generator where you could Travoltify your name. And I thought it was really cool. They, um, my, if you, if you Travoltify my name, Frank Morano, um, it's Finn Mazoon, which I really liked. I thought that was uh, pretty cool. The Adele Dazim name generator. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page if you, uh, if you have not uh, heard of it. I thought it was really fun. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. If you want to try and uh, Travoltify your name. See if you Travoltify Alex Barnard. What do you got? Oh, I, I got to restart my uh, internet. 800-848-9222. Let us hear from Peter in the Bronx in the meantime. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, just, I wanted to, uh, the, uh, the whole Maya Randolph thing. Um, Rudolph. One of the things I noticed, I have a friend, he's like the most hysterical guy in the world you'll ever meet. But he's, uh, there's a side of him that's just the most sensitive and miserable person you'll ever meet, too. You know, And I, I find that with a lot of people. I, I, even, I think even Jim Carrey admitted that at one point, that he's like the most miserable person when he's at home. You know, and I think that I, I think, you know, there's a touchy feely issue, you know, over that whole incident with uh, with David Ludden, you know, and I'd, I'd like to tell you a little joke, if I can, before I get off the air with you. Sure. Um, what's the difference between uh, a prostitute, your girlfriend and your wife? I give up. A prostitute. Oh. A prostitute goes, is that it? Your girlfriend goes, is that it? And your wife goes, beige. We need to paint the ceiling beige. <laughs> anyway, have a good night, Frank. That's very funny. Uh, thank you, Peter. 800-848-9222. That's not the worst I've heard. That's not the, that's not the best, but it's far from the worst. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, yes. I like to say, Frank. Yes. One of the uh, scariest movies when I was a kid I ever seen was the Attack of the Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body yes, Snatchers. Yes, that's a fine film. I th- I think I thought that um, uh, that uh, because they look human, that adds another dimension of of uh, being frightened to the story. Yeah, you I know, would agree they, with they that. They made believe they were human. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't know that that's necessarily on topic with our conversation about mispronunciations, but that's fine. Um, and by the way, I did Travoltify Alex Barnard's name. It's Alec Brezent. So if John Travolta were to say Alex Barnard's name, he would say it as Alec Brezent. Yes, you, that is correct. You could Travoltify your own name uh, by going to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. Let's see if we do uh, Matt Blaze, which is already some sort of a pseudonym. Ah, Matt Blaze, if you were to Travoltify it, is Mia Blork, which is interesting. Okay. I could see that. He actually looks like a Mia Blork, if you've ever met Matt Blaze. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Bruce in Belize. Hello, Bruce. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I'm getting ready for hurricane. I don't know if you heard, but there's a big tropical storm that's heading right at us. It's going to be a Cat 1 hurricane. I did not hear oh. that. Well, you don't have time to watch the weather channel, I don't think. But there is a – and we, we're on an island. We're in San Pedro. 
So we're not on the mainland, and we get hit hard. It's kind of like LBI. Someone said it's long. We're 26 miles long, but it's very narrow. So I got my hurricane shutters up, and they're boarding up everything. We got hit really bad uh, several years ago, wiped out about 20 docks. So um, just wanted to <laughs> give you a shout out. Got plenty of beer and stuff ready because they're not even selling alcohol tomorrow. Oh, you're kidding, really? Well, you know that's a real crisis when they stop selling alcohol. No, it's serious, dude. We're, like I say, we're on this island. I mean, and we get hit before it gets to the mainland, and all the models have it coming right at us. So, um, but we should be okay because it might only be a cat one. Well, wishing you the best of luck there, Bruce, uh, having lived through uh, Hurricane Sandy 10 years ago and heard, hearing so many of the stories out of uh, Hurricane Ian and uh, Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Katrina. I know uh, that's no joke. So uh, please stay safe. Let us know how you make out, okay? Thank you. Listen, I actually wanted to talk about Ukraine. I know you were talking sure. about that. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm really concerned. I'm almost 70. I lived through the Vietnam War and the draft when they still had the draft. And they actually were picking out your birthdays one day on the radio. We had a big party in my friend's house playing pool down the basement and drinking beer and hoping, like, you know, they weren't going to call our birthday out. It was on the radio. It was live. It was insane. That was 1971. I think I was a senior high school because I was 18 already. And, uh, but I was, it was, but I'm really concerned. And Rita was talking about this, like, you know, putting troops in Ukraine is going to piss Putin off big time. And that's how the Vietnam War started. And they put advisors in, you know, their CIA. Of course, and there's an embassy. There's a U.S. embassy in um, what's the Kiev. I didn't realize that she said, and they, you know, those half of those guys are spies. You know that these embassies. So um, I hope this doesn't escalate. Like you know, Rita was talking about it big time, and this is how the Vietnam War started. Just by putting advisors on the ground. Well, yeah, I don't want to uh, overstate it. I mean, there were a number of a number of causes that contributed to the Vietnam War. But you're right; uh, certainly, an escalation of a of a troop presence was a part of it. And I think, um, the, the, look, the more I hear about what's going on in Ukraine, the more worrisome it is. And Bruce, thank you for the call. Stay safe with that hurricane. Um, but, uh, I don't want to, it's not a perfect parallel, but there are some similarities. There are some similarities. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's uh, 800-848-9222. Now I did want to mention Paul Newman, uh, one of the most iconic stars in all of Hollywood. Sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand has a new memoir out, a posthumous memoir, or does he? Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. (laughs) Um, So there's this supposedly newly discovered memoir of Paul Newman uh, that... um, where he is very open about a lot of things, and open in a way that you can only be after you're dead. 
And in it, he faces up to his alcohol problems, his failings as a father, and he reveals the secret of his sex appeal. And it's really revealing. And I'm going to buy this book, even if we can't get them to send me a copy for free. I'm going to buy this book. But he was a great actor. I mean, you think of all the great Paul Newman films. I mean, you have um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You have Nobody's Fool. You have uh, The Color of Money. You have The Sting. Mr. Shaw, we usually require a tie at this table. If you don't have one, we can get you one. Hey, that'd be real nice of you, Mr. Lonergan. <laughs> Lonergan. Uh. Yeah, I mean, he was great. He was one of those people that was great throughout his career. Nobody's Fool, Road to Perdition, The Hudsucker Proxy, Color of Money, Message in a Bottle, Twilight, which a lot of people didn't see, The Hustler. Um, back in the 60s. I mean, it's really just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And a guy that was, you know what? I am one of those people, and I'm not saying this because I'm homophobic or I'm afraid people are going to think I'm gay or something. I can never tell when a guy is handsome. Like uh, my colleague Sid Rosenberg, he saw our own Kenneth, and he immediately was furious at how handsome he was. Now, I'll be honest, I'm looking at Kenneth, he's a nice enough looking guy, but I would never look at Kenneth and say, oh, the, you know, wow, my goodness, he's handsome. Now, Sid Wood, he can tell if a guy is handsome. Hate that guy. And he was so upset with Kenneth for being handsome that it really bothered him. I did not know enough about Kenneth's handsomeness man. to be upset about it. Now, I'm the man. it's not unique to Kenneth. Whenever somebody says, oh, this person is so handsome, he's so dreamy, such a heartthrob, I can never tell as a guy. I can never tell. I mean, look, obviously if somebody's repulsive and has all sorts of weird uh, scarring and they're uh, 100 pounds overweight and they're got all sorts of – they're missing an eye and got all sorts of weird stuff going on, I can tell that person wouldn't be considered handsome. But the people that folks fawn over as being handsome, I can usually never tell. Paul Newman was an exception. Paul Newman was someone, even when he was older, that I would say, I would look at his face, and I could say, okay, that's a handsome man. And I think it had to do with the symmetry of his face. It was perfectly symmetrical. But here was a guy that was a brilliant actor. He was somebody that was incredibly handsome, even I could tell. Here was someone who was married to his wife, Joanne Woodward, for 50 years. 50 years among in Hollywood terms, that's like 9,000 years in real world terms. And um, had covered so much ground as an actor. Um, and then as a philanthropist with the salad dressing and giving all the money to charity. So why are we talking about this? Because of the nature of how this memoir came to be. And I'm curious, one, if you think this is a real memoir, and what you think the ethics of this are. Listen to this. The, the book is called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. And in The New Yorker, there's an interesting article about asking the question about whether or not this is really his memoir. Interesting article by Louis Menand. And he writes the following. As best I can piece together the story, in 1986, the year Paul Newman turned 61, Newman sat down with an old friend, the screenwriter Stuart Stern, and began recording on a cassette player material for an autobiography. Now, that's not unusual. 
Sid Rosenberg did that for his book. A lot of people do it for their book. If I ever write an autobiography, I'll probably do the same thing. This continued for several years, during which Stern also interviewed some of Newman's buddies from college and the Navy, his two wives, his brother, other members of his family, friends, show business colleagues, screenwriters, directors, producers, agents, actors. You get it. Pretty much everyone he could find who had had some relationship to Newman. By 1991, he had been working on this for five years, the writer. He had recorded more than 100 interviews. Then Paul Newman asked him to stop. And then listen to what happened next. 1998, Paul Newman takes all these cassettes all the interviews that this guy had done, years worth of work, including his own commentary. He takes them to a dump, all these tapes, and burns them all. Burns the tapes, as Pat Buchanan suggested Nixon should have done with the Watergate tapes. Newman died of cancer in 2008. About 10 years later, some of his children, he had six altogether, approached Ethan Hawke to discuss making a documentary. Ethan Hawke learns that Stern, who died in 2015, had transcripts of the tape made. Maybe Stern had worried that Newman might destroy them, and he used the transcripts to put together a six-part series on the lives and careers of Paul Newman and his second wife, the actress Joanne Woodward. It's called The Last Movie Stars, and it aired this summer on HBO Max. I haven't seen it yet, but I will. I have to go to a friend's house because my wife has canceled HBO. That's a subject for another commentary. Meanwhile, the transcripts were edited by David Rosenthal and made into the book that has just been published, the book we're talking about, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. And a lot of the TV series is Ethan Hawke Zooming with his pals, few of whom knew either Paul Newman or Joanne Woodward, and most of whom present on screen like they just rolled out of bed. The friends read from the transcripts, each having been assigned a part. Laura Linney reads the part of Joanne Woodward. Um, George Clooney does an uncanny, apparently, Paul Newman. Um, And so this whole book, is based on edited transcripts of burned tapes that Paul Newman threw out. My first question for you is, is this ethical? Paul Newman did not want these tapes to be the subject of a book. And now they are. Is that right? And I am glad as a Paul Newman fan that I can read this book and that it's there. But is that appropriate? I mean... Do you think Paul Newman knew that when he was burning these tapes that there was a transcript out there that was going to be then the subject of a book? I'm betting he did not. 800-848-9222. Hawk, Ethan Hawk, was able to fill in the years after the tape bonfire when Newman was involved with his philanthropic activities. And uh, he, by the way, Paul Newman is said to have raised and given away more than half a billion dollars, much of it profit from Newman's own brand of uh, food products. And the series includes classic scenes from his best movies. But one question that no one involved in these enterprises addresses is why more than 20 years ago Paul Newman burned the tapes. Why did he burn the tapes? Was it because he didn't like 
what other people were saying about him? Was it because he didn't like what he was saying about himself? Was it because he decided after five years of reminiscing that he wasn't a very interesting person? Whatever the reason, the fa- the auto de fe at the town dump leaves an impression that Newman did not want a memoir. Now he's got one. And obviously had no say about what got put into it. Another question here is why Paul Newman's children want all this stuff to come out. They say it was to set the record straight. And as with any star of Newman's magnitude, a lot of myth and rumor involve him. But even though the memoir was put together by friends and family, some people say it has a slightly diminishing effect. Newman was self-deprecating. He was self-deprecating about his self-deprecation, and it can grow a little monotonous. monotonous. And the memoir's title is apt. He never thought of himself as anything special, just an ordinary guy who happened to be kind of handsome. But that was an accident of birth. Oh, I didn't even mention Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. That's another one of my favorite Paul Newman uh, films. So I'm curious what you think of the ethics of doing this memoir when he clearly didn't want one. I am not sure it's appropriate. I wouldn't do this to my father. Now, my father's not famous, but my father's a a very handsome guy, a very bright guy, a very brilliant guy, a guy that could be um, famous for any number of things. And yet, uh, if he made a decision to burn all the tapes from his memoir, I would never, and I don't think my siblings would, well, maybe my brother Nick would, but I don't think my other uh, three, my other two siblings would ever publish a memoir based on transcripts that, of tapes that my dad wanted destroyed. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Hello, Frank. Uh, no, I don't think it's ethical. Um, you know, I, say, I don't think it's ethical at all. I also don't think the title of that book is ethical. Because um, my main benefactor, who I worked for for many years, Amnon Barnes, published a book by that same title. Uh, he was a uh, one of the early fa- he was a founder of a company called Handy Dan's, which was to become Home Depot. Oh. All of the people who who uh, who worked for him would go on to form Home Depot. So I just whatever I just when I, when you t- said that title, I said, oh my God, that's Amnon Barnes's book. So you know they may get. They may get a lawsuit. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm sure they indemnified themselves somehow, Norman. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Since we are in a uh, Paul Newmanish mood, let me leave you with this clip from an interview he did with um, James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. We also lost James Lipton not long ago on why he got into acting and why he said he didn't like acting. Acting to me is like dredging a river. It's a painful experience. I simply do not have the intuitive talent. I worry about acting and constantly complain to myself about my own performance. Uh, Perhaps you can expand on that a bit. There's a difference, of course, between intuitive acting and cerebral acting. Uh, How do you see yourself falling on one side? Well, I I hope I've I've now fallen into the other river, but... um, uh, And it, this doesn't fall into the area of self-deprecation either, uh, which is not mandatory. I, I don't know the things that I have a gift for except tenaciousness. And I always wanted to be a jock, 
and I never I skied and and um, and boxed and uh, wrestled and played football badly, all badly. Uh, I could only dance with one person, that was Joanne. I could never dance with anybody else. And I had no physical grace. And uh, the only thing that I ever found any grace in was an automobile, which I guess is why I got hooked on that. Um, and I, I never felt that I had any gift at all uh, to perform. Um, but it was something that I wanted badly enough uh, that I just uh, I kept after it and someone asked me once uh, liken yourself to a dog and, and I thought terrier and as a matter of fact my dog Harry right now <laughs> he knows how to work over a bone <laughs> and uh, and I think that's a pretty accurate uh, assessment of, of the way I worked. Um, and I, of course, was very resentful of, of, uh, of the people who had uh, an instinctive and an intuitive um, direction for themselves and who, whose instrument was readily available to them and... Uh, whose life experience uh, prepared for them for that, but mine didn't seem to. And, uh, um, you know, to try to find out what, what it took to make me available and accessible, I guess, was the, was the largest trajectory that I had to travel. And it didn't, and it's just recent, actually, I think. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head Thomas singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. We lost B.J. Thomas last year as well. If you want to call in on the Paul Newman situation, you're welcome to. Um, 800-848-9222. You know, during the $1,000 minute yesterday, a fella called in and um, the question was, what, um, what is the name of the killer in the Halloween movies? And he, he panicked and said that it was Freddie Myers. So what I have done 
is I have used some artificial intelligence to help create a hybrid of what it would look like if there were a merger between Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers. And I have posted that in our Facebook group. If you want to see it, just go to uh, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com. Excuse me. uh, Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. It's... um, I got a nice uh, message uh, from that uh, fellow who played the thousand dollar minute yesterday, who said, uh, "In in he said, wrote to me on Facebook and said, I appreciate my shot at the thousand dollar minute last night. Just wanted to let you know I love the show. You guys are doing an amazing job. When you can listen to a radio show and not be able to tell which way the host leans politically, you're listening to one hell of a great radio show. I also like to say I was quite humbled last night." Every morning at 4.30, I'm screaming at the radio, I can't believe you missed that. You'll never understand until you're in that spot. I knew that answer. Heck, I just watched that terrible last Halloween. Keep up the great work. There's not that many out there like yourself. So that's nice. A fellow that didn't do well on the $1,000 minute, and uh, he is still an enthusiastic listener. So that's awfully nice. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Patrick is in Huntington. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Frank. Yeah, just bringing up Paul Newman. Uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, I, I enjoy the color of money, but when you – and that was his only uh, best actor win. And when you look at his his uh, portfolio work, it's just – he should have got it for probably five. Absolutely. You know? And it's, it was, I think it was almost like a gimme when they, I think maybe the Academy. Right. It was like, like, like a John Wayne a situation. One. Right. It was a John Wayne situation where obviously John Wayne's best film was not True Grit, uh, but they figured, oh, let's throw him a bone. But you're right. Yeah. If you go down the list, um, you know, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, Absolutely. Cool Hand Luke, um, you know, uh, The Verdict. Uh, the he could have yes. won for uh, Nobody's Fool. He could have won Nobody's, for a whole you bunch. You know what I loved about Nobody's Fool is one of early uh, Philip Seymour's, uh, one of his early films. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. another one of my favorites. And how about Slapshot? Yeah, no, uh, another great picture. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he should have had about four or five when you look back. I mean, uh, how about uh, somebody up there likes me? Yeah, hey, look, there's a lengthy, lengthy list of great Paul Newman credits. Thank you uh, very much, Patrick. 800 848 John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Okay. As someone who studied with one of the great memorists of our time in high school, and you know who I'm Let's talking about, Let's see if he about, mentions Frank, the fact that he went to Stuyvesant. Uh, I have to question the... Or the Brooklyn Book Festival. ...ethics Those are of publishing ones. this when clearly Paul Newman did not want to see this make the light of day. Um, I, I, I haven't seen the or documentary film and... After hearing more about this, I, I really have no interest in seeing the documentary. No, I mean the documentary TV series or buying a copy of the book because I, I think if I did so, I would be showing disrespect to uh, uh, Mr. Newman. Well, I hear you. Um, I, I still am interested in seeing it be- because of uh, my curiosity, but I think you're coming from a much more consistent uh, ethical place than than I am on this one, John, which is not unusual. 
Thank you, John. All right, uh, Matt plays. You and I both uh, we both struck out again. You know, we're we're the Houston Astros of of John predictions. You know, no Stuyvesant, no Brown, no Brooklyn Book Festival. So there's that. All right, 800-848-9222. I did want to mention um, that, um, you know, I uh, it was an interesting experience. We were trying to predict whether or not my son is going to be right-handed or left-handed because he uses both hands. And obviously, as somebody that... Um, would love to see him active in sports. I'd love to see him be left-handed because there's just so much opportunity for a left-handed pitcher, for instance. Not to say that you can't be a, a an effective athlete being right-handed. There are certainly many, but it's just there's a lot of great left-handed athletes. does give you an, a real advantage. And now, um, you know, he's very good with eating. You know, he, he's willing to try just about any food. Seems to like just about any food. He, he's got a lot of favorites. He likes carrots. He likes uh, corn. He likes squash. He likes uh, sweet potatoes. He likes almost everything. Uh, he's not crazy about applesauce, and he's not crazy about peaches. I think both of those are a little too tart for him. But we give him just regular adult food. We cut it up for him. He's got six teeth now. And we put it on his tray and, you know, let him eat it. And I'm very pleased that much like his father, unlike his mother, he's enjoying mushrooms. Not the, you know, um, whatever, the, the hallucinogenic mushroom, but portobello mushrooms. And my wife and I took note is because all of his food is essentially finger food now. Yesterday at dinner, he was eating all of the mushrooms with his right hand. So I think he might be right-handed, which on the one hand means he probably won't be a great left-handed pitcher. But on the other hand, right-handed people tend to live longer than left-handed people, which I'm certainly happy about. So, um, you know, bittersweet. But it looks like he's a right-handed mushroom eater. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A couple things I want to get to. First, uh, in order to keep your pocket constitution from getting dusty, uh, what is the Sixth Amendment? Matt Blaze, you know what the Sixth Amendment is? No idea. No idea. If you would have hazard a guess, what would you be hazarding? I couldn't even guess. I mean, I I plead the Fifth. There you go. Well, you know what the Fifth is then. Um, any idea, Ken? No, no, idea. not a clue. Okay, um, I, I, I think a lot of people may need a refresher on that. Sixth Amendment does a few things, but one of the things that it does, the Sixth Amendment states 
that, quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to trial by an impartial jury. It gives you, in a criminal case, the right to a trial by jury. In the Seventh Amendment, it gives it to you in a civil trial. Similarly, Article 3 of the Constitution mandates that the trial of, quote, all crimes other than impeachment shall be by a jury. However, the bottom line is there are all sorts of crimes in this country where people don't get a jury trial. And I read a fascinating fascinating essay on this, and I just linked to it on Facebook. You can check it out, facebook.com slash Moranofan. It's by J.D. King and Andrea Roth. It's on uh, inquest.org. J.D. King is a professor of law at uh, Washington and Lee University. Andrea Roth is a professor of law at UC Berkeley. And essentially, they go through how in this country, misdemeanors or petty crimes aren't really jury trials. And they talk about how these petty crimes, so-called petty crimes, are anything but petty. These misdemeanors are a major source of overcriminalization and punishment, and requiring jurors to screen them could shake up the system. And I am quite frankly, shocked that I have not heard more about this from civil libertarians and from originalist conservatives. Because there it is, clear as day, black and white, the Constitution says you should get a trial by jury. And yet, a whole bunch of criminal prosecutions and penalties, so-called petty offenses, aren't getting a trial by jury. Compared to felonies... Uh, and other offenses that are deemed serious, petty offenses don't attract nearly as much attention from lawyers, from scholars, from academics, from policymakers, because as their very name suggests, they're insignificant, petty. But petty offenses play an underappreciated role in maintaining our criminal system. As a lot of legal scholars have noted, petty offenses can impose a lot of consequences on employment, immigration, family, in ways that follow people for years. These low-level charges also constitute a major entry point in the criminal legal system. So how did we get to a point? Now, they call a petty offense, um, where, uh, by the way, uh, around 10 million state defendants and over 70,000 federal defendants are prosecuted each year for misdemeanors, and those cases have a big effect on future prosecutions. These misdemeanor convictions can be used to deny bail, to impeach defendants who testify, to enhance sentences, all sorts of things. Um, but how did we get here with the Constitution saying in plain black and white that you should get a trial by jury? In spite of that clear text... And the importance of that right to a trial by jury, most people facing criminal charges in the United States are denied a jury under what's known as the petty offense doctrine. The jury right applies only to crimes 
carrying a potential jail sentence of six months or more. Did you know that? That doctrine originated in a 19th century Supreme Court dictum that relied largely on uh, Blackstone's commentaries and the founding era practice of allowing certain offenses deemed petty by parliament or colonial charters. Yet the existence of these controversial summary bench trials could just as naturally be read as inspiring the framers' decision to guarantee a jury in all criminal prosecutions. So the reason they're able to do this is because the Supreme Court said they could. Even though I think this is totally out of whack with the con- with what the Constitution suggests. This is one area where I would love to see the left, uh, and you know when I, when I say the left, I mean the hard left that wants to let everybody out of prison, get together with the strict constructionist Scalia-esque style right and bring this before the Supreme Court again. Because while the Supreme Court is busy overturning previous precedents on abortion, on guns, on affirmative action, this is something they should look at. And I know we have a lot of people listening to us right now that are in jail who probably are there for some petty offenses. Wouldn't you have liked to have a jury trial? I hope you consider bringing this as a, a constitutional test case. How all criminal prosecutions, which is what it says in the Constitution, and all crimes became only some prosecutions for some crimes is the focus of this essay in inquest.org, Anything But Petty. I've linked to it. It's lengthy. It's a little wonky. But I I learned a lot by reading it, and I would love to change this, and I'd love to see some legislators on either the state or the federal level um, say that, yeah, a trial by jury means a trial by jury even for petty offenses. I think, think of what that would do to the system. Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. That's 800-848-9222. We were talking about Paul Newman earlier. Roberta in Rockland had a comment. Hello, Roberta. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. So um, in the mid-'80s, I worked for a party company in New York City, and uh, this photographer called. They represented a chimpanzee named Zippy, and Zippy was— Now, the famous Zippy? Zippy the chimp? Yes. Wow. Yes. But there were many of them. This was the last one, I think. Anyway, this photographer called and said that Paul Newman was very shy— he had tried to to photograph him before, and he needed a distraction. Could the chimp come? So the party company, I was one of them that came, and there were about six people in the room. And Zippy comes into the room on it with his roller skates on, and he heads straight for Paul, grabs oh both his hands, danced around in a circle with him, then pulled him over to the little refrigerator that was there, opened the fridge, took out a beer, <laughs> handed it handed it to him. Then he got a paper cup and he held it out 
for him, for Paul to pour the beer. And when I spoke to the trainer, he said he never taught him anything like that. Okay? So now Paul was, like, really intrigued, and he posed for a few pictures with the chimp on his lap. And I was told to go over and fix um, Zippy's little bow tie. (laughs) So I went over and fixed his bow tie, and I realized I'm, like, 10 inches away from Paul Newman. There he is. There I am. And I said, hi, Paul. Meet Zippy. And I was like, I couldn't believe that (laughs) happened. That's wild. So did he say anything back to you? He said, what a magnificent creature. But everything about Paul was so unassuming. Was was he talking about you or the chimp? No, not me. The chimp, of course. Wow, that's something. But he was very unassuming. And, I mean, I couldn't believe it. He's a star. But he was not at all acting like a star at all. Yeah, well, that was always his reputation, that he was very down-to-earth and very, um, you know, very humble and very unassuming. And I think it comes across in this book, uh, based on what I've read, uh, that he's very self-deprecating. Hey, Roberta, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. Sure. Thank you. Okay. 800-848-9222. You know, listening to Roberta's interaction with Paul Newman... It does remind me a little bit of the time that David Patterson met Nelson Mandela. And now this, unlike Joe Biden talking about almost getting arrested trying to go see Nelson Mandela, the David Patterson, the former governor of New York, this story actually happens to be true. If you heard this story, it's really interesting. David Patterson uh, was at this rally in New York that Nelson Mandela spoke at back in 1990. And sure enough, Nelson Mandela must have had a feeling that David Patterson one day would go on to become the first black governor of New York. So David Patterson is standing in between Nelson Mandela and the stage that Mandela is about to speak on and the podium. And uh, Mandela comes walking right into right towards David Patterson's direction on the way to the state. And sure enough, he must have known David Patterson was destined for greatness because he spoke to Patterson and Patterson never forgot these words. Mandela walks right up to David Patterson, who he had never met before. And he says, of all things, to David Patterson, excuse me. And David Patterson gets out of the way, and Nelson Mandela goes on to give his speech. And that's a true story of Nelson Mandela's interaction with David Patterson. That really happened. Hey, um, one thing I'm curious to get your take on is something that the Henry Ford Health Clinic did in Michigan. And that is for, in the run-up to Halloween, you know, they have these children who are... In the NICU, uh, this is for, I believe, premature children. And they they had children photographed, about 18 of them, premature children, with I'm gonna I'm gonna share it on my Facebook page so you could see what we're talking about here. Uh it, so it's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. They had these children photographed with children's books and a lot of inspiring quotes from these children's books. But the children are dressed up in costumes 
And a listener wrote to me and and asked if these um, if this is exploitive or if it's um, cute. And my initial reaction was that it's cute because you see these babies uh, with a book in front of them, like a book like Guess How Much I Love You with some uh, dressed like a bunny rabbit. And you have another another child, another baby there with the book. If you give a mouse a cookie and the baby's dressed as a mouse and there's a cookie there. But then uh, the guy that wrote to me said he thinks it's exploitive because the babies didn't consent. And the costumes might have put the babies at risk in an emergency. Well, I don't think they put the babies at risk in an emergency. But um, I think the doctors that are responsible for these babies' care wouldn't have let them put on a costume if there was a real chance that they could be at link of an, at risk of an emergency. But it got me thinking. I don't. I'm assuming the parents of these children consented. But I don't know. Here you have on social media the Henry Ford Health Center dressing up all these babies that have no idea what's going on. And putting them out there on social media. I don't know. How would you feel about this if this was you? And you saw this photo of yourself 10 years from now, 12 years from now, 15 years from now? I don't know. So I thought maybe I was looking at it. Um, it is cute. That's the fa- That's a fact. But is it also exploitive? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So they just so you understand, they have a book and then they they dress the baby up as a character from the book. Like there's a very cute kid. They have the book. Where's Waldo? You know, we have to find Waldo. And then they have a little baby dressed like Waldo. But in some ways, this debate reminds me of the debate of uh, what Mother Teresa did. One of the things that Mother Teresa was criticized for is she was baptizing people that were sick. And in some cases on their last legs, as it were. And she was baptizing these folks without their permission. And a lot of people criticized Mother Teresa for that. And I thought that was a legitimate criticism because these were adults. These were adults that had never necessarily made the decision to accept Christ as their as their savior. And here Mother Teresa's baptizing people like crazy. Oh, here's somebody that's um, you know, not able that's unresponsive. Let's make them a Christian before they can tell me they don't want to. I thought that was a fair criticism. I think this this um, debate, if you can call it that, of dressing up these kids as these literary characters while they're in the NICU, while they're premature, I don't know. I could see where people are coming from, but I'm not sure I view it as exploitive. But maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Is it okay to just dress up? Premature babies as literary children's characters? Again, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming the parents of these children gave permission. Assuming that's the case, is uh, there anything wrong with that? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you look like you were reacting to this. Or were you not? Well, 
I mean, did Carmine consent to be dressed up like a pumpkin and a pig? He did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you, know, he so you know what I'm did. saying? He absolutely I, did. I think this is ridiculous. It's yeah. not exploitive at all. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think you're right. I tend to think you're right. By the way, I was informed during the top of the hour news, you may not know this, but I was informed that uh, both Matt Blaze and Kenneth are left-handed. So what are the chances of that, that we have two left-handed people in that control room, they actually yes, that is correct. had to rejigger all of the controls in there to make them accommodate a left-handed personnel. There's a, you got to see the phone is a left-handed phone. The board is a left-handed board. And, you know, I'm so often wondering why, when I call for sound, I hear just silence. And apparently this is one of the reasons why. The one thing they have not yet configured for the left-handed nature of it is the device that Matt Blaze uses to, you know, play sound. So it gives, it takes an extra second or two, and that's why. So I, I, we're the, we're the person suffering from this right-handed bias that society has. Hey, I had to mention this. Um, there was a very interesting situation involving TikTok. TikTok is a social media uh, entity. That is all the rage. It it is doing an incredible amount of business. And it is owned by a Chinese company. And I I think one of the things that Trump was right about is banning TikTok in the United States. Or at least forcing a sale to an American company. Because you have millions, literally millions of American social media users whose data is going straight to China. And who knows what China is doing with this data? And uh, th- you have this a situation where the an FCC commissioner, Brendan Carr, said that the government should ban TikTok. So Brendan Carr spoke to Axios, and this is very strong language that he's using um, in terms of urging a TikTok ban with more than 200 million downloads. Think about that. 200 million downloads in this country alone. This app, which is as popular as anything, is becoming a form of critical information infrastructure, making the app's ownership by a Chinese company a legitimate national security concern. The FCC, keep in mind, they regulate us, as the folks at CBS Sunday Morning can tell you. The FCC regulates radio stations and TV stations. They have no authority to regulate TikTok directly. But Congress previously acted after this uh, Commissioner Carr voiced concerns about Chinese telecommunication companies, including Huawei. So TikTok is currently in negotiations with the Council on Foreign Investment which is a, uh, an interagency committee that conducts national security reviews of foreign companies to determine whether it can be divested by Chinese parent company. The New York Times reported in September that a deal was taking shape, but not yet in its final form. Um, so this is an area where I think Brendan Carr is a Biden appointee, but he's on the same page that Trump was. Brendan Carr was on CNBC in June uh, talking about booting TikTok from app stores. Yeah, well, most people look at TikTok and they say, well, what's the big deal? It's just a 
another uh, viral video sharing app. And that's just the sheep's clothing. As you walk through, it is a sophisticated tool for harvesting this data. And one thing that we do know is that right now the CCP is running one of the most you know, widespread uh, data gathering operations out there. And TikTok has repeatedly said, don't worry, your data is stored in the U.S. What we've come to find out from some of this investigative reporting and leaked documents is in fact, according to TikTok employees, everything is seen in China. And so while I think that's a national security issue, it's also an issue when it comes to just applying the plain terms of the Google and Apple app stores, which say you have to be clear about who's accessing the data, why are they accessing the data? It has to be only used to improve the service. And it strikes me that a plain application of that in light of this pattern of misrepresentations about data should result in booting them from the app stores. What do you think? I am amazed that so many Americans have no qualms about downloading TikTok, putting all their information on there. I think... You know, um, I think our radio station in New York, WABC, has a TikTok channel. I, I don't understand that at all. Why would we want to hand over all this data to the Chinese government? And I know people may say it's a Chinese company. It's not the Chinese government. In China, there's no difference. And I'm amazed at so many parents who let their children download TikTok. I was listening to Gordon Chang on um, with John Katsimatidis a couple of weeks ago on his show, and he said he doesn't understand how they still allow this. But... There's been a whole bunch of reports of late that have challenged TikTok's claims that U.S. user data is secure because it's stored outside of China and the company does not comply with Chinese government content moderation requirements. Well, turns out that's a lot of nonsense. China-based engineers working at TikTok accessed non-public U.S. user information, including phone numbers and birthdays. Do you want the Chinese government having that information? ByteDance, which is the company that owns this uh, TikTok, they're based in China, and they instructed employees to push pro-Beijing messaging to U.S. users of a news app in July. ByteDance planned to use TikTok to collect, to collect information about certain U.S. users. That's according to a report published in Forbes. The Trump administration unsuccessfully attempted to ban the app two years ago. Then it ordered ByteDance to sell TikTok to a U.S. company. No sale went through. Trump's crusade against TikTok was heavily criticized by progressives at the time. But the more we learned about it, the more it looks like Trump was right. Um, Democratic Senator Mark Warner said last week, quote, This is not something you would normally hear me say, but Donald Trump was right on TikTok years ago. If your country uses Huawei, if your kids are on TikTok, the ability for China to have undue influence is a much greater challenge and a much more immediate threat than any kind of actual armed conflict. I think this is so interesting. One, if you're a parent. Do you let your children use TikTok or do you use TikTok? 800-848-9222. A growing number of U.S. political candidates are using TikTok to reach voters as the midterm elections draw near. I mean, do you want China having the information for all these political campaigns? I can't imagine that's a good idea. What do you think? 
800-848-9222. Bernard is in Connecticut. Hello, Bernard. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Good fan. Um, yeah, I wanted to say why people don't take uh, misdemeanors to trial. It's because if by chance you ever get found guilty, they're going to hammer you. So if you stole a car or something where you'd normally get maybe a year or two for a with a, a DA, you'd work out a deal. If you, you know, take a judge to trial for something like that, they're going to hammer you if you lose. Yeah, Bernard, so, I think you're misunderstanding the essay and, and my comments on it, right? You're talking about a tactical decision that a defendant makes to go to trial or not go to trial. That's a separate discussion. I get that. And that applies to felony cases just as well as misdemeanor cases. But correct. what I'm yeah. talking about is this petty offense doctrine where even if you want a trial by jury, if the crime that you're being prosecuted for doesn't have at least a six-month prison sentence, they don't have to give you a trial by jury. That's that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about choosing to take a plea versus going to trial. I'm talking about somebody that wants a jury trial for one of these supposed petty crimes, and the Supreme Court says that in spite of what the Constitution says, they don't have to get one, and I don't think that's right. No, and they end up spending nine months in jail waiting for the trial that they could have gotten out in six months, so I understand that point. Yeah, uh, thank you, Bernard. 800-848-9222. Kate is similarly in Danbury, Connecticut. Hello, Kate. Hi, good morning. Frank, I, I love your show. Oh, thank you. Um, I just want to say you mentioned to the fellas having left hand are left handed. Right, I did. I will tell you, every time I see Baby Carmine's picture, he seems to always favor his left hand, and I always reply, "I'm sorry, I sound like a broken record, but I believe your little Carmine." maybe a left-handed himself. Well, um, well, so that's interesting because we go back and forth, right, in terms of whether we think he's left-handed or right-handed. And uh, Hank in New Jersey just wrote to me. He said what we should do is put a toy that he likes in front of him and see if he grabs it with his uh, left hand or his uh, or his right hand, which, which, which is interesting. That would be an interesting experiment. But um, I'm telling you, yesterday at dinner, he was grabbing all these mushrooms with his right hand. He was totally favoring oh. that right hand. Okay, because whenever Rachel posts, he's like there was a picture that I, one of your little kitty cats, um, maybe Ben Bathsheba, was on the couch, and he, he was saying hi to her. And then when he was in the high chair, he's giving the thumbs up and Every time I see that the pictures of him, it seems like he's favoring that side. Maybe, maybe I want him to be a southpaw. I don't know. Are you left-handed? A, no, I have family members that are, and it turns out I have more left-handed siblings than I we do. Like. Oh, that's interesting. See, my mom is left-handed, and I think, um, so he's got the left-handed gene, and I think one of, um, some of Rachel's siblings are left-handed, I believe. I think one of her parents might have been left-handed as well. So it is, it wouldn't be inconceivable for him to be left-handed. And again, I would love it because left-handed pitchers are at a premium. But thanks for calling, Kate. I appreciate it. 
listening. Okay, have a good uh, day. Bye-bye. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to get to the $1,000 minute uh, momentarily, but um, it's, uh, it is interesting that... Um, that uh, there's a lot of people explaining, writing to me via email saying they don't think there's anything wrong with these NICU photos, uh, these NICU children being dressed in costumes. I tend to agree. I tend to think it's relatively, relatively uh, harmless. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. What we're going to do is give you an opportunity to be the seventh caller to that number, 800-848-9222. And if you are, we'll let you... Play the $1,000 minute where you have to try and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, you will be $1,000 richer. And again, it's not as easy as it sounds. You heard from the gentleman yesterday who said that he is going to, you know, he every day is shouting at his radio, thinking that he can beat the questions that the people are getting wrong, and he froze. Even though he just saw the new Halloween movie, he froze. Said the wrong killer's name. So if you think you have what it takes, don't get flustered. Give me a call. Uh, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, And uh, it is now time for us to give one lucky person an opportunity to try and win some money because it is time for The Other Side of Midnight. See, The Other Side of Midnight. It's all that left-handed stuff. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let us say hello to Thomas on Staten Island. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Thomas, you're familiar with the game, I imagine. Yes, I am. Hey, you weren't at that uh, Lee Zeldin rally on Staten Island by any chance, were you? No, I wasn't, but I was at your charity softball game. I was your pitcher. Oh, great. Yeah, you you did a great job. It was great to meet you. Thanks for playing again in that. You're welcome. All right. I hope you had fun. I, re- I really did. I actually really did. Thank Good. you. Good. All right. All right. So we'll get started because I know you know the uh, the game as well as anybody. All right. Where does rain come from? Clouds. <laughs> what do you call a doctor who primarily works on teeth? Uh, dentist. What month does Thanksgiving take place? November. How many legs does a spider have? Eight. Who is the current majority leader of the U.S. Senate? Chuck Schumer. What is the name of the murderer in the Friday the 13th films? Uh, Jason Voorhees. Which American car company makes the Mustang, the F-150, and the Escape? Ford. 
What Italian poet wrote the Divine Comedy? Oh, Italian poet. Um, I'm not sure of that one. Take a guess. Starts with D. Da Vinci. Uh, no, unfortunately not. Um, it was uh, Dante, Dante Alighieri, but we would have taken oh. just Dante. Oh, you did really well, though. You did better than anybody has done in a while. Uh, you got up to uh, you got up to question number eight. You got seven right, which is uh, which is very impressive, uh, Thomas. I was actually talking to my wife about this last night, and she said she should call. She's taken Italian, so she would have probably got that one right. So. Uh, well, I bet you she would have known that. Ask her, and then t- I- try and get her to call in tomorrow. Okay, I will. All Thank right, uh, Thomas, I'm putting you on hold. Give your information to Kenneth, and we will try to uh, we'll get you a, a, a really nice prize. Okay. All right. Thanks, Frank. All right. Thank you, uh, Thomas uh, in Staten Island. There you go. I'm glad. I'd like to see it ma- make it interesting. He was going at a good pace there, and I feel like that's a, a reasonable enough question. Question for question eight, right? Got to be kind of tough. What? It's got to be a little hard. It's yeah. question eight. Yeah, and I don't think it's crazy tough, you know? The Divine Comedy. People know the Divine Comedy. And it was question eight. He was doing great, though. He was doing really well. All right. 800-848-9222. And um, I am in day three of experiencing cold-like symptoms. And so um, it went from two days ago, I had a sore throat. Yesterday, I had a runny nose. Today, I have a stuffed nose. So I'm hoping, and the first thing uh, Alex Barnard said when he saw me, or heard me, was, oh, you sound a little stuffed up today. So I'm hoping it wasn't too annoying to you. I'm hoping I didn't sound too nasally to the point of it being difficult. But um, what can I say? Hopefully tomorrow, the cold makes its way out of my body. We'll see. 800-848-9222. Leslie is in New Jersey. Hello, Leslie. Hi there. I have two things. First of all, uh, I am ambidextrous. You're what? Ambidextrous? Right hand. What is it? You said you're ambidextrous? Yes. Oh, great. I was born I was born right-handed, but when I was in junior high school, I broke my arm, my right arm. And my teacher would not let me just sit around. He made me take all my written work with my left hand. And as a result, I'm ambidextrous. And believe it or not, uh, my writing with my left hand, even though it takes me longer, is neater than my writing with my right hand. Huh. Well, that's interesting. That's great. Yeah. Second of all, uh, was there a book or a movie or something called Injustice for All that you know of? There was. Um, And I think that was a... um... I think that was an Al Pacino film, and uh, which was quite good, actually. Okay. Because uh, one of your cohorts, I'm not going to mention names, has just written a book which is titled And Justice for All. Well, so you can have a book that's the same name as a film. Uh, Mark Levin, for instance, wrote a book called uh, Men in Black, even though there had been a film called Men in Black. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's all uh, what you get the rights uh, to use. For instance, there's a Dove ice cream, a Dove soap, and a Dove mm-hmm. uh, something else. So uh, sometimes, just because a movie is named something, it doesn't always mean that you can't name um, you can't name something else that. 
Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Thank you very much. Yeah, again, I, I would consult with uh, with a. For instance, you know, our show is called The Other Side of Midnight. There was also a book mm-hmm. called The Other Side of Midnight. There was also a film called The Other Side of Midnight. Now we have nothing to do with the film or the book. But it's the same name. We went and went through, I don't know the exact process, but we went through registering and patenting and trademarking the name for the radio show. Mm -hmm. But not if we wanted to write a book by that title, it would be much more difficult. Okay. And I have one more thing. You mentioned that you used to hang out on the parking lot on Chancellor Avenue. What, in Newark? Yes. Well, I didn't hang out in the parking lot. Uh, I did spend a little bit of time there. Um, you know, in my uh, younger days, there were a couple of uh, restaurants and bars that I would hang out at that were not too far from there, but not necessarily in the parking lot itself. Okay. I was going to ask you if you knew my friend Leroy, but that's all right. It doesn't ring a bell, Leslie, but thank you. Um, Did I know Leroy? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I want to be clear. I didn't hang out in the parking lot itself, so. All right, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. By the way, people should take any legal advice I give them with a grain of salt and consult an attorney before writing a book that has the same name as, I don't know, Titanic or something, whatever. There's a lot of things that have the same name. Yeah, no, it's very common. There's a Metallica album called Injustice for All. Yeah, I mean, it's a phrase. It's a common phrase. Um, but uh, it is what it is. All right, 800-848-9222. We're on uh, Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. Hey, um, you know what happened on this day in 19... There's a lot of presidential history that has happened on this day. In one of the greatest upsets in presidential history, Democratic incumbent Harry Truman beat Republican challenger and New York governor Thomas Dewey by just over 2 million popular votes. Also on this day in 1976, Jimmy Carter was elected the 39th president of the United States. And I believe he then, on this same date in 2002, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And today is uh, the birthday of James K. Polk, um, former president Warren G. Harding, and a fellow that ran for president several times, Pat Buchanan. I emailed Pat uh, earlier wishing him a happy birthday. And uh, he is 84 years old today. Still writing a great column. Still as bright as ever. I will tell you. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in just a bit. Uh, and in terms of national days, it is national, <clears throat> uh, as you might expect, Going after Halloween and in the run-up to Election Day, National Deviled Egg Day. Deviled Egg is actually surprisingly simple to make. I'm not going to make that today in my dinner for uh, Rachel that I'm preparing because she's probably going to have eggs for breakfast. I don't think she wants to do eggs for breakfast and dinner. But um, for those of you that are looking for something creative to make, it is National Deviled Egg Day. And uh, there's some good deviled egg recipes out there. My mom actually makes a very, very Im- impactful deviled egg. So, all right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Frank Diaz, Into the Flames. Um, This was not one of the songs that I had requested that we play today, but uh, for those of you that are uh, big Frank Diaz fans, there you go. Here you have it, Into the Flames. I don't like this as much as uh, the previous song that we heard from him. It's just not my thing. You know, that's the thing with music. It's subjective. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's just uh, not my thing. Um, hey, one other quick thing. I did mention that um, in, um, uh, in denunciations last week that there is a movement to ban red dye number three. And uh, it's, a, it's a food coloring, and it's in all sorts of stuff. It's a synthetic dye uh, that creates a cherry pink stain. It's in all sorts of food, and it's in something that my wife and I, it's in mostly candy, but it's in one thing <clears throat> that my wife and I eat, which is a some fake uh, bacon, a Morning Star like, soy bacon alternative. And uh, I told Rachel, she was making breakfast on Saturday, I said, I don't want to buy this anymore. Let's finish the batch we have, and then um, I don't want to buy this anymore, and she then did some further research and because the FDA themselves determined that red three causes cancer when eaten by animals in 1990. And they said they would take steps to ban it in food, in supplements and ingested drugs, but they haven't yet. So I told Rachel, we shouldn't buy it anymore. But um, Rachel did a little bit of homework, right? And she found that the amount of, red dye that would be necessary, the amount of red three that would be necessary to have anything harmful was far more than was in this tiny little bit. And we eat it so infrequently that maybe once a week at most, she felt it was worth the risk. And then she did a little more homework and the chances of it actually being a carcinogen are one in 100,000 or something along those lines. So she is uh, making the case that we should still use Red 3, even though the FDA themselves has indicated that it is, you know, potentially uh, carcinogenic. Uh, But she produced all, she had all these articles. Of course, I can't access them them now because um, they're all behind paywalls. But some other people have said that part of the problem with Red 3 is all the junk food that it's in. It's in candy corn, big surprise, nerds, peeps, pez, sweet tarts, hundreds of candies and cakes. And they're saying the problem is n- not the Red 3, 
problem. It's in all these processed foods and all these sugary foods. So the fact that this red three caused cancer in laboratory animals doesn't mean that there's a convincing case to be made that it causes cancer in humans. That being said, I still was a little um, leery about about eating any food containing it. So so we'll see. As of now, it's still on Rachel's shopping list. But uh, but today I'm doing the shopping for because I'm cooking today, and I will not be purchasing anything with Red Three in it. All right, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for uh, 15 seconds. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. There are two open lines if you want to be heard. And um, Matt Blaze has sent me the the music list for today. Matt Blaze, I got two music lists here. Is one accurate and one inaccurate, or is it one just duplicative? I don't know how you got two. You I, I literally just sent it. Okay, no, I literally just got two. But oh, that's weird. Uh, so be it. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's give you an opportunity to be heard on the other side of midnight. This is fifteen seconds of fame. Mike is in the Carolinas. Hello, Mike. Buongiorno, Frank. Buongiorno. Uh, you know, real quick, the first time I called Bernie's show, uh, he was talking about Cortland and his daughter. I was on Route 17 going to Cortland for the weekend. And I said, uh, Bernie, you know, I'm going to see my son for a little while. He's a wide receiver on the team. And he said, Mike, are you trying to set up your son with my daughter? I said, what? No, not at all, Bernie. Not at all. Uh, one of the best on the radio. One of the best in history. Thanks, Frank. Peter in Queens. Yes. I've been a Democrat for about 50 years, but this time I got the vote Republican to show him that there is something else besides being a Democrat in New York. New York. Thank you so much. Tom in Nevada. Tom. Oh, boy. He didn't turn his radio off. I blame oh. Kenneth. <laughs> Billy in Brooklyn. Frank in Blue Mountains. How does that guy keep getting on, Frank? I got a prediction for you. The Dow Jones hits two nine 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 within the next four trading days. Well, hey, if the Phillies win the World Series, that's very possible. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Roger. How about uh, the next time with uh, dog poop? You uh, use a scrub brush under under a like an outside faucet or something. Well, but the problem is I, we, we don't have, I don't know. I guess well, we do have an outside force. I could have well, used a, a hose. A, a brush, at least a scrub brush. Yeah, that's not bad. Well, I'm hoping it doesn't happen again. Andy. Hey, Frank. Happy Halloween. Hey, you know what? We're going to miss two years with the, with, the, uh, with the song, bro. Thanksgiving. It's going on. We missed last year. Now we're going to miss this year. Well, it gives us plenty of time to work on next year. Am I right, Andy? Thank you. Troy. And go to, go to www.twitter.com. Yeah, I lost you there, Troy. Uh, I know uh, you're trying to promote your YouTube channel, but uh, we're not not hearing it. E. Frank. Yes, it seems like Eric Adams uh, has loosed his arm with the anti-crime uh, units again. Yeah, E. Frank. Uh, you, you. Whenever I hear you, I just wish you had Troy's phone, blah, and that I couldn't blah, hear what blah, you said. Blah. All right, uh, 
Well, why don't we end it there? I doubt things are going to be improving much from there. Hey, action-packed show coming your way tomorrow. You know who's going to be on the show tomorrow? Gerald Salente. Uh, Gerald Salente is a fan favorite, a guy with a history of prognostications. And we're going to take a look at the life and times of Wyatt Earp uh, with uh, one of his biographers, Mark Warren. We got uh, Brian Kilmeade coming on the show as well. <clears throat> and um, it's going to be an interesting show. You know, it's funny that uh, that fella um, uh, mentioned not getting uh, n- the next time that you step in dog poop. My wife was yelling at me as she's cleaning my boot because she felt I did an insufficient job. And she's saying, please watch where you're stepping. I don't know how many times this has to happen. I said, honey, when is the last time that this happened? And she said, well, this happened. Uh, you had to throw a pair of shoes away when we were in Cape, when we were in Cape May. And uh, I said, wait a minute. Are you talking about two years ago? She said, yes. I said, two, so if this happens once every two years, that's a lot for you? She said, yes. This never happens to me, and it's already happened to you twice in the time that it's been together. And I, I felt I was unfairly blamed for that Cape May situation because the people that we were staying with, our friends, Kevin and Virginia, they had two dogs and they didn't do a proper a proper job cleaning up after those dogs. So I felt uh, a little bit um, wronged in that respect. All right. Hey, uh, since today is uh, James K. Polk's birthday, I'm sorry we didn't get to play it, but we weren't able to get the rights to it in time. There is a phenomenal song uh, by They Might Be Giants called James K. Polk. And if you're interested in learning about the life and times of James K. Polk, our, um, the Napoleon of the stump, uh, there's no better way to memorize the facts of James K. Polk's life and presidency, a dark horse riding high, uh, than, uh, re- than listening to that song of They Might Be Giants. So if you want to learn more about our 11th president, You can learn everything there is to know in three minutes by listening to that song a couple times today. It's very catchy, I have to warn you. So that's on my official list of recommendations for the day. Hey, um, until tomorrow, Frank Moreno, good day.